0: over from ashes to beauty we have been forged in the fire of adversity called to return to our first love follow the ancient paths as we discover the hidden word of yahuwah this is crossing over with jessica arianis
1: Hallelujah. Good evening uh, to all of you who are joining us from wherever you are. Uh, welcome. And let me get Dr. Pigeon on with me. Good evening, Dr. Pigeon. Good evening to our viewers. We have a good show for you tonight. Uh, you know, Dr. Pigeon, you're an attorney. And I have been waiting for a long time for you <laughs> to discuss the matters of the law, which I'm sure many people would love to hear from a a lawful, I think that's the correct term, right? Not legal, but lawful perspective in regards to the terms of our contract. And we're gonna get into that tonight, specifically the judgments, the commandments. What is it? The uh, statutes, the commandments and the judgments and how they pertain to us. And and, and maybe somehow we'll, we'll sort of incorporate some of the promises that have been instituted within that contract uh, and and how we can abide under the stipulations of that contract. I know you're going to get into that in just a bit. And it's not, it's never what you think. It's never what you think. You know, Dr. Pigeon, he'll give me a title and he'll say, hey, let's do this, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, oh, that sounds great. And I'll start reading some books or some literature. And then Dr. Pigeon sends me the PowerPoint and I'm saying, that's nothing like I was, what <laughs> blows my mind every time, Dr. P. But hey, good evening. Well, good sharp.
0: Evening, Jessica. It's great to be here. <laughs> again, to be discussing this topic, you know, you know me, I love talking about the issue of the law and the oh, yeah. issue of the law is of course uh, huge. And of course, I don't know. I mean, this was Yah's preparation in my life that he decided that I was going to be, uh, you know, a teacher of the law. And, uh, it's just the way it is. I and mean, I was shocked quite frankly, when my commission turned out to be uh, Ezra 710, I mean, I had this baptism verse, which was actually, um, Micah 6.8, you know, he has shown thee, old man what is good and what does Yah require of thee, but to love mercy and to act justly and to walk humbly with your Elohim. And so that was that. And then, of course, when I started doing mission work, I ended up being commissioned under the Book of Ezra. And I'm like, what is this? I can't stand the Book of Ezra. And I really didn't like Ezra <laughs> because it was it struck me as being a particularly racist book. You know, you people have married the wrong people. Get out of here. You know, I'm kicking you to the curb. <laughs> get rid of your wives, get rid of your kids. You know, get out of here, right? And so I'm thinking, well, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to have any, anything to do with Ezra. But but here I was, we had a prophecy guy go over prophesy over our mission group. And this was what came out in my commission, right? In 710 was, it reads this way. It says, for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek at the Torah, of Yahweh, and to do it, and to teach in Yasharel commandments and judgments, hmm. and so this is what we're going to be talking about today. But we're not only going to be talking about that, Jessica, but we're going to be talking about some more difficult aspects of the law. And uh, and I want to talk about this. I mean, I you know you know me. I love this subject. Yeah, right? and I love this subject matter from you know, from both sides of it. Whether you're talking about the secular side of the law sure. and its meaning. Or you're talking about the scriptural side of its meaning. And so when we get into the PowerPoint, we're going to see that there is much to discuss. Now, when we talk about things lawful, let's open up with the first question, which is, was the creation of the United States of America lawful or unlawful? Let's start with that question. You know, going back to the Revolution of 1776, was it lawful or unlawful, or was it just plain awful?
1: Or was it lawful, and did it become unlawful?
0: Well, that's another question, and we will get to that, and I think I think the answer to that question is absolutely. And yeah. in fact, we're so unlawful right now that uh, yeah, I mean, when we, you know, this show that we're going to do tomorrow, Jessica, is going to be huge. Shall we announce
1: yeah. it? Yeah, let's talk about that for just a quick second. So I I just wanted to give our viewers an opportunity to start logging in. I, I did have the uh, chat disabled. I, I apologize, but I, I went ahead and enabled it. So if you want to jump on the chat, we have our moderators there waiting for you. And we enjoy your comments. We enjoy your questions. So please uh, jump on the chat. Listen. Tomorrow we have an exclusive interview, and it was done at the last minute. Doctor Pigeon is actually going to interview a man who goes by the name of Malki. Actually, let me let me tell you his real name because he he wanted me to mention his real name if I have it here. Uh, you know, I don't. I wrote it somewhere in my notes, but he goes by the name of Malki Malki uh, Zedek, which is basically a play on the word Melchizedek, and he is the one who. sacrificed on behalf of the 70 nations conference, uh, who certain individuals were acting on behalf of the Sanhedrin who are working to establish the Noahide laws, uh, not only in Israel, but amongst the nations. And they are promoting this idea and they went out, they felt obligated and appointed uh, to go out to the Temple Mount and to sacrifice an animal. Um, we'll get into more of the events tomorrow and the details of the event tomorrow. Uh, but the individual who felt led to actually do the sacrifice is Melchizedek. He's an, he's a member of our community. And he says that he was led by Yahuwah, although they sacrificed unto Hashem, but he says that he was led by Yahuwah. There are a lot of strange details that accompany this event which is why we are going to interview him so that we can hear his perspective. But even more than that, we're going to hear his perspective and why he believes that he was led to do what he did. He believes that it's going to bring judgment in specific arenas and areas and peoples. Uh, But Dr. Pigeon has something to say as well. So once we interview him, then we will uh, continue in our discussion of the prophetic implications of this event and uh, some of the the visions and some of the the information that uh, Yahuwah has been giving to Dr. Pigeon in regards to the times that we're in. So sometimes it's difficult to see prophetically what's happening because we are so trained to see only in the natural, and uh, we can judge erroneously. So I believe that it's uh, it's wise, it behooves us to search these things out. So please, tomorrow, 9 a.m., because the gentleman is in Israel, so we have to pay attention to that time change. But 9 a.m. here, Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, Dr. Pigeon will uh, interview this gentleman exclusively here on Crossing Over. What do you got to say about that, Dr. P?
0: Well, I'm going to bring with me a cup of coffee, Jessica, Yeah. At 9 a.m. I'll have to have my cup of yeah. coffee, you know, mandatory Friday. Sure. But the beauty of it is that sure. we're going to be talking about, we're going to be talking about this Malakit Sadiq, you know, he has chosen this name for himself. It's wow. a very interesting name. and you know, We're going to deal with that issue. We're also going to deal with his background, who he was uh, before he felt this call to come and do this. We're going to be talking about the spiritual implications and the spiritual implications of what took place on the Mount of Olives are huge. I mean, the spiritual implications are huge. In fact, I was telling my brother-in-law here this afternoon, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, this is the single largest event spiritually since the crucifixion of Mashiach. Okay, that's my humble opinion. Now, there's also, I think, some... Tremendous implications. Now, Maliki Sadiq says that this, that this uh, letting of the blood and the killing of the, the killing of the sheep there uh, has is going to bring judgment, and I think it already has brought judgment. And I hate to break the news to those people who are going to be judged by it, but it is a significant judgment. It is a significant judgment that has happened, and I can tell you that I have been shown if you will and i hope again i hope that the uh uh, the brothers and sisters that are with us on the broadcast can abide my you know prayer life or whatever it is but yah has shown me that um he is blinding the eyes of the noahide and he is deafening the ears of the noahide and equally important he is taking them into a famine of the word Now, a famine of the word is coming to the United States, and it's going to be a 70-year famine of the word Mm. in the United States. This is going to be a huge, huge difficulty for this country, because when the word is gone, of course, the slaughter begins, and the slaughter is going to be, in my opinion, again, Uh, it's going to be enormous, what's going to happen in the United States. And I think it's going to be a very shocking process that takes place here over the next several months that i think are just going to astound people what's going to take place in this nation and a lot of of the precipitation of this events of these events has been signaled because of this particular sacrifice now this particular sacrifice also uh, is foreboding for those who live in yerushalayim and who live in um in, in the land there because when you see of the desolation the abomination of desolation in the holy place that is the time to flee uh, for the mountains and for those of you who are living in jerusalem who, who live in that area actually in the whole proximity uh now is the time that you may want to consider being somewhere else this is not a prophetic word for um the nation of the united states although there are different prophecies that apply to the united states but it is a prophetic word for the nation of Israel, and so I want to speak with Malikid Sadiq, whatever his real name may be, which is okay whether he uses it or not. It doesn't matter. His name is known in heaven, of course, and he has some very interesting background. He has background that is similar to many of the people that are in this particular calling, Jessica. He's, yeah, you know, there are so many of us who were who were uh, who came out of the church because we were. Fed up with the hypocrisy, or we were fed up with the shallowness of it, or we were fed up with the artificial contrivances, or we were fed up with things that were just flat antithetical to Scripture. And we couldn't sit there any longer and say, well, I'm reading this, and you're telling me that, and I'm reading this, and you're telling me that. And these two don't mix. Yeah. This book doesn't comport with what you're saying from the pulpit.
2: Yeah.
0: And so many people got tired of that and walked out. But then what did they walk into? Now, this has been the big problem, and this is where, of course, in my heart, I yearn to to uh, speak as truly as I can without misleading people because the problem is when you look at the Hebrew world, okay, all of scripture is based on the Hebrew world. It's based on the Hebraic expression. And, and we're gonna see that foundation laid here in the law even as we talk about it. Today. Yeah,
1: yeah. An Eastern mindset versus a Western one, completely different.
0: Completely different. And one is
1: abstract, one is functional.
0: Yeah, mm. one is linear and the other is not. The other is more right. circular. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so when we see this kind of thing, so the question is that we we felt a duty and a need because, you know, when Brad and I were looking at scripture back in 2008, 2009, we were very disheartened with what we had seen going on in the English translations. I mean, the Westcott court you'd be in the foundation for all of the American Bibles that were being published and, and they were getting more and more redacted, more and more politically corrected, more and more uh, uh, neutralized, and they were becoming less and less true. And of course, this was what drove us to recreate the scripture and restore scripture and to try to bring it as stridently and as undiluted as we possibly could. And this was our quest, this has always been our quest but in doing so, we, we transliterated, you know, 3,600 Hebraic names and we brought back Hebraic concepts. Well, many people who have read the Sefer have been blessed by the Sefer. We get testimonies practically every day of people who have been blessed by the Sefer and not cursed by it. But you see people coming back and say, well, what about the sacrifices? What about the feast days? Sure. What about the Shabbat? What do we do? Are we called to, you know... Reinstitute the sacrificing of birds or lambs or goats or bulls, you know, he has shown the old man what is good and what does sure. God require of thee, right? And so when we see this now, we're gonna get into the law here tonight. We're gonna to talk yeah. about the yeah. Thing. But anyway, tomorrow morning is going to be tomorrow
1: morning, nine a.m. Pacific I think, time.
0: I think it's gonna be I think this is going to be one of the most important discussions that has ever happened. I agree. Concerning the Hebrew roots movement, concerning what is happening with Christianity, concerning what is happening with Judaism, what is happening in the lamb, what is happening in prophecy. Because sure. we need a trigger event. Okay. Well sure. Gonna...
1: You know, Dr. Pigeon, I just I have a few things to say before we go go on. So here's the thing. It's funny because I had mentioned this a couple of weeks back, actually a few months back. I said, you know, I don't think that, that things are gonna pan out the way that we naturally assume that they are, or the way that we've been programmed. To believe according to you know documentaries that we maybe watched when we were the left behind series or shows that talk about the great apocalypse or armageddon and the coming of the end times and all these movies that are predictive programming so there's trying basically you have media trying to program a a paradigm in which if anything comes alt that's alternative to that then we reject it because it's not the way we've been programmed to perceive things or think things are going to happen. And I remember for a long time people saying, oh, they're gonna, there's gonna be a chip in your hand and they're gonna put a chip in your forehead or a chip in your hand so that you could buy and sell. And it's so funny because I used to think a, a literal chip in the hand, I was I was a kid, but still a chip in the hand. And it was funny, one day I had my, my, my ATM card this 20 years later and I'm swiping it to pan. I'm like, there's a chip in my hand. <laughs> like it's in my <laughs> hand, right? I, hand. I have a chip in my hand oh, yeah, and yeah. I don't let it go. But then it went on and they said, oh, but it's, you can't remove that chip you can put down. And I said, yeah, but it's so funny. Can you put this chip down? Can you put this chip Down, nobody can put this chip down. It's really hard to put that chip down. So it's funny that, you know, it's not the way we think. And so I always thought, oh, the sacrifices, they'll commence and we'll know it because it's just going to be detailed and it's just, we'll know exactly what it's going to look like. We never thought that it was going to be so different. And I think that's why it's important that we pay attention, even if these little nuances don't lead to something which i believe they are uh even if they don't at least we're being active watchmen and we're making sure that whatever comes into the house is of yahuwah right so that first said please also tomorrow 9 a.m exclusive interview but after we interview the man, Dr. Pigeon's going to continue with some of the prophetic revelations that he has received and some of the stuff that he has uh, acquired during his prayer time, fasting and praying and seeking for wisdom and guidance. But what we do ask is that uh, you be sensitive. I promised our brother, Mal- Malki. Uh, that we were going to respect him and that we were going to care for him irregardless of his state of mind or the condition of his heart, mm-hmm. that we were going to respect him. And that's what we aim to do. Uh, we're not here to, uh, you know, Belittle him or to berate Absolutely him, not. but simply to hear his perspective and see how it it's it's really playing into what's happening with us today. And so, please join us tomorrow 9 a.m. If you can't, you can watch the broadcast as it as it uh, once it airs. Uh, okay, Doctor Pigeon. Listen, I'm going to start this show off with the definition. Why is this definition important? Well, recently I've been studying um, mythology. I know that sounds strange, but I study all sorts of weird stuff. But mythology is important because a lot of people will say that what we believe is also mythological and that our Elohim is a derivative of other mythological gods, quote unquote. Ahrim, Elohim Ahrim, right? Other gods. And so as I was studying, um, I came across this word superstition and the various books that I had, including my law books that I was reading from ancient law, uh, specifically the law of the Code of Hammurabi, which we discussed and we'll discuss a little bit later. But the Code of Hammurabi, the Code of India, the uh, laws that were actually uh, established In the days of the times of antiquity, so this word superstition was used many times by different authors. And I said, why this word superstition? So I'm going to read a definition, and we'll get into our topic for tonight, Doctor Pigeon. Superstition: a widely held but unjustified belief, which Doctor Pigeon and I, we are going to do our best to show you how. Our belief is justified, remember that word, write it down. So superstition is a widely held but unjustified belief in supernatural causation, leading to certain consequences of an action or event or a practice based on such belief, which is why I pose the question in uh, this description for today's show, is the law superstitious. Are we being superstitious? Have we as a people said that we need to adhere to some sort of order in order for us to appease our Elohim uh, by uh, our actions? Then he is satisfied or gratified, his anger then being subdued. Dr. Pigeon, does this make any sense?
0: Oh, yeah. It's a great opening, Jessica. Although I have to tell you that when we talk about superstition, you're right. It's superstition mythology There have been so many people talking about, of course, you know, the Zechariah Sitchin's model, the discussion of the Sumerian tablets, the Emerald Tablets of Thoth, the Nag Hammadi, you know, the Nag Hammadi scores, the, you know, the community rules of the Essenes, you know, et cetera, et cetera, the Code of Hammurabi. And in fact, when we get into the discussion tonight, we're going to be talking about the foundations of Western law. What are they? Where they come from? And how did we ascertain those? In fact, we're going to be dis- discussing, in particular, the laws of nature and of nature's God. And we'll get into that. But when you talk about superstition and whether or not things are, 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 um, you know, natural or supernatural in their origin, you know, we have some very interesting discussion here in what is supernatural and what isn't. And a lot of it depends on, of course, answering the question, who is Yahweh? I mean, that's a big question. Right. And when you're talking about some of these issues that go into the laws of what we see in creation, uh, we have to answer those questions too. And there's no question about the fact that the governing laws of reality, the laws that we see around us, are supernatural in origin. There are, you know, scientists have since the beginning of time tried to explain the laws of nature. And in some cases, they can get close, but in many cases, they can't. And so this is why, um, you know, we want to talk. And, and I don't believe there is a scientist today that can say, oh, well, we know the we know how the how uh, uh, reality was created. None of them will say that. The, and the, the smarter you get, the, the more reluctant they're going to be to say, I know how creation was created. Uh, instead, you're going to get well, we have the string theory. Well, we have the Big Bang Theory. Well, we have the this theory. We have the that theory. We have the other theory. These are all and they're not even really theories, they're not even hypotheses, because there is no experiment that can be done to uh, ascertain the truth of this of the discussion. But we're going to see that there are some parameters here. And so the question is, you know, what is, ya? Yeah, what is super, what is supernatural and sure. what is natural?
1: Right. And it's interesting because there are various scriptures and I'll give them to you in just a bit. But there are various scriptures that talk about nature uh, glorifying or testifying to the glory of Elohim. Yeah. And and it, it is, there's actually information in what you're saying that will, again, what does that testify? How can it testify? We have Psalms 19 verses one through four declaring the heavens, The heavens declare the glory of Elohim, proclaiming the work of his hands. How can the heavens do that, right? We have Job 12, verses 7 through 10, that even the beasts of the field uh, give glory to Elohim and testify that even these things can teach us of the work of his hands. Imagine we have Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 20 speaking about the creation of the world and his eternal power and his set apart nature being established and uh, understood by faith. And then we have Psalms 148, one through six also speaking about the heavens and nature. So um, that nature is controlled by Elohim. So let's talk about that. Let me get uh, your PowerPoint up in just a minute. Here we go. Here we go. All right.
0: Hey, would up that, and people, running. Like an image I had behind there, Jessica.
1: You better stop. <laughs> I don't know. It it didn't, it didn't cross over. It didn't it cross didn't
0: get, over. Yeah, oh, okay, yeah. Okay. All right. I'm with you. All right. The law, commands, judgments, and statutes. A study of the law in Scripture. Let's take a look. Okay. Let's begin with this statement here. Now, you know, a lot of people, when they talk about the United States, they like to talk about paragraph two of the Declaration of Independence. But I like to talk about paragraph one. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth. Now, that's interesting. The powers of the earth, the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Okay. So because we respect you, we're, we're going to tell you why we're divorcing you, but we're going to claim the justification for our divorce based upon the laws of nature and of nature's God. Okay. So when you, when everybody is studying this, you know, studying this particular passage at the Declaration of Independence, you know, when you're taking poli when you're taking intro to government or civics or whatever they used to call it in high school, how many of your professors have told you what the laws of nature and nature's God are? Has anybody discussed that with you ever in any level? You know, when I was studying this stuff, no, no one ever told me anything about it. I had to study it on my own. So let's go to the next slide here, and let's talk about our friend Jean Baudin, okay? Six livres de la public, or Six Books of the Commonwealth, as it's called in the English. Now, you can download this online. It's a free PDF, Six Books of the Commonwealth by Jean Baudin, just look it up, download it, take a look, read it. It's not that long. But Jean Baudin's greatest contribution to political theory lies in his critical writing of Western political thought. Now, let me give you a little background on Jean Baudin. Jean Baudin was a person who lived in the 1500s, and he came up as a Catholic monk, and he studied and and was, in fact, became a Catholic monk, and then he left the monastery and became a lawyer in Paris, France. And once he became a lawyer in Paris, France, because he had an inquisitive mind, he went to Genève, Geneva to study with John Calvin, who at that time was in the process of creating the 1560 Geneva Bible, although this was in the 1530s. Anyway, he went to uh, Geneva and he studied with uh, John Calvin and his group, and he was there for 12 years. and he, And then he returned to Paris and he asked the question, what is the foundation of Western law? Is it Greek or is it Latin? is it the corpus juris civilis? Is it Justinian's code? Or is it Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato? And he was looking back and forth. Greek, Latin, Latin, Greek, Greek, Latin, Latin, Greek. And ultimately, he determined that the foundation of Western law was Hebrew. It was Hebrew, okay? And so he declares this in his six books of the Commonwealth. And he says, look, he defined the concept of sovereignty as perpetual, unique, absolute, and indivisible. Now, look, This idea of sovereignty bears with us today. Every nation considers considers itself sovereign. Now, you can test this anywhere you you go. When you go to Mexico, for instance, or you go to Canada, you're going to discover that the laws of Canada prevail in Canada. The laws of Mexico prevail in Mexico. United States laws don't prevail there. If in Canada they say you can't make a right-hand turn on a red light, then you can't make a right-hand turn on a red light. You'll get ticketed if you do it. If in Mexico, they say, this is lawful, but it's totally unlawful in the United States, well, you can do it in Mexico, but you can't do it here. And it's because each nation state is a rule unto itself. And as Jean Baudin says here, sovereignty is perpetual. That That is to say it exists as long as the state exists. It's unique. It's unique to that particular state. It's absolute. In other words, the sovereign nation recognizes no authority superior to the sovereign nation. Our laws are our laws. They're binding, and we don't care if somebody else thinks that their laws should be binding on us. They aren't, okay? Now, this is going to become important when we talk tomorrow about the nascent Sanhedrin and whether or not they can impose upon us uh, the Noahide system, all right? Now, he defended the order in the state since it prevented the war among his subjects. In addition, he advocated that the royal authority was only limited by the states general and the parliament and that the king should not obey anything more than the laws of nature and of nature's God. In other words, the king is subject only to the laws of nature and nature's God, right? Interesting, eh?
1: Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So so when we see this now, so when you have when you have other laws, now you, you'll see, for instance, like I'll give you an example of how this works. Many people believe that George Bush was a war criminal because of the Iraq war, or many people believe that Barack Obama was a war criminal because of the Arab Spring. Or whatever your case may be, whatever your situation may be, whatever you might believe about the sovereign. But the fact of the matter is, is that the United States of America does not recognize the right of the International Criminal Court to try any American sovereign under foreign law for crimes that were that the foreign law has said they've committed. If they're not crimes in the United States, we don't recognize them as crimes because we have absolute, complete, unique, sovereign authority over those laws. However, the, the royal authority or the executive authority, if you will, is called to know the laws of nature and nature's God. Now, with Jean Baudin making a statement in the 1530s, you have Thomas Jefferson now who's going to come back in the Declaration of Independence and Mm. stick it back in the nostrils of King George and say, hey, look, you are required to know the laws of nature and of nature's God. You may not agree with your parliament. You may not agree with us. You may not agree with the Continental Congress. You may not agree with anybody. You might not agree with the French but you are required to know the laws of nature and nature's god and we're appealing to those laws now to say these laws justify our breach in your sovereignty to say your sovereignty is not absolute here we're declaring a separate and equal sovereign station
1: okay see. however so so nature's god Was it an exclusive God? I mean, did they know, did they make that information uh, known or was this in general nature's God? Who was nature's God to them?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, a lot of the deists that were in power in the United States, that's a good question, which God they actually worshiped at the time, right? Yeah. Were they worshiping the creator? The God of fortune? (laughs) Yeah, the God of fortune, the God of misfortune,
1: right? Right, Exactly.
0: uh, exactly. And could it, could it have been of the dark spirits? Could it have been Lucifer? Could it have been uh, any, any other gods? Could it have been Ishtar? Could it have been Molech?
1: Absolutely, could it absolutely.
0: have been you know, it could have been any one of those. That because because guess what? In the United States, they never named the god the worst. Bingo,
1: bingo, very good, very good.
0: And that's why we don't know. So when we talk about the laws of nature and of nature's God then we have to get into this and look. Now, when we talk about this approach, this writing, the Declaration of Independence was a declaration that was going to King George. Hey, we're telling you, King George, this is our declaration, okay? So this argument was written to him, to him. Now, the question is, what did King George believe? Well, you have to go back to King Yamez, Yamez, right? or that the the Americans refer to as King James, right? Hmm. Whose real name was Yames, Yames. Now, Yames had some very interesting things to say. You know, he wrote in his book on demonology, which is a very interesting read. And we're going to discuss some of those concepts from his book in demonology here tonight as we discuss the tenets (laughs) of the law.
1: Bravo, Dr. P. You know, I just pulled out my notes on devils and demons, right? I just pulled them out. Tell me that the father is not on, on the
0: with us tonight. Amen. Hallelujah. So good. Hallelujah. And so good. Go so, ahead. So we talk about Yamez and, and his call. You know, Yames believed that he was in the had in the line of the divine right of kings and may have, in fact, been in the line of the divine right of kings. And so at this point you're talking about a series of commands that he understood as being scriptural. Now by the time we get to 1776, which is going to be 100, and, you know, 170 years later, we may not be talking about the same thing at all in fact at this point you've had massive infiltration in both the church and in the and in the secular state by the Jesuits, by the Masons, by the Illuminati, etc. Remember the Illuminati was formed in 1776, right? And we see a massive change in the United States with the War of 1812 when the United States tried to assert itself to take territory from Canada and the Crown said, nope, we're not going to allow you to do that. And they came up the Mississippi River and they burned Washington, D.C., which at that time only had 2,600 people in it. It was basically a swamp. No one wanted to live there. And But they had declared the capital there and in came the British and they burned it to the ground. After that, after that, we brought in French architects and French designers to build a Masonic temple, right, with the compass and the square, to lay down the satanic pentagram that puts the White House at the base of that pentagram, to even put up the symbolism of Ishtar over the top of the mall. So you have the symbols of Ishtar, the symbols of the pentagram of Satan, and you have the the Masonic compass right there in Washington, D.C., and on top of all of that underlying spiritual stuff lies the cupola of the Vatican and the obelisk of Egypt wow. declaring Roman authority under Ishtar as the gods and goddesses running the United States. I mean it's obvious you can see it if you go to DC, you can't miss it.
1: Excellent. Excellent. So let me let me just say something. So the other day um, we were discussing this and I told you that I I was that's why I'm reading this mythology book, because I am doing a study and I'm going to present on uh, demons and devils and our concept of demons and devils. And I believe, again, as part of the influence of the church and some of the traditions and the lies that we have inherited, I believe that the aim is to. Pervert our perspective, that word pervert meaning crooked, to make crooked our perspective so that we don't have right understanding. And without right understanding, then we lack authority. Because if we are believing in error, then guess what? We don't move like a a wellspring water. We don't move, we don't flow in that. And so it really is to deprive us from accessing the truth. And that truth is where our authority. Uh, exists and so the concept of a demon or the concept of a devil has been thwarted, has been made crooked in our own understanding. So I want to clarify, but not tonight. But I do want to clarify. But it's interesting that we've heard and I've seen many videos on the God of uh, the, this. This just this word God itself. This word Gad, right, coming from the the Hebrew word Gad. And that this word "God" is the god of fortune, in which some people equate that meaning as as meaning the god of money. But as a matter of fact, it's the god of fortune, and the god of fortune in which our country places their trust on the dollar bill—the god, the Gad, or the Babylonian god of fortune—did not actually mean monetary success, or prosperity. Fortune, and if you look up this word fortune, even in which just using a dictionary, what you'll discover is that the, the idea, the Eastern mindset of fortune had everything to do with the outcome of your circumstances or your fate, okay? Because people at that time believed that there was gods for everything in which they were not in control. So if they could not control an element, then there was a god controlling it, Okay. And if there was a, that's why they had a multitude of gods, Dr. Pigeon, a pantheon of gods, because they had, there were so many elements that they did not either understand or control. And by such, ascribed a god to these elements. Now, the fact that there were events in their lives that they couldn't control, such as their barrenness or the barrenness of a womb or you know the outcome of, a, of a, an event, they would then pray to these gods in order to find favor, which is again, why they sacrifice so often And you've seen it throughout many cultures is because they believed that these gods were not necessarily benevolent, that they were hostile, emotional, you know, finicky sort of elements and be just like the elements around us. One day it's hot, it's cold. And they believed that in order to appease the gods of fortune, they had to sacrifice often. And then by doing so that they would receive the favor of those gods. Mm. And therefore, and therefore Dr. Pigeon, they, again, worshipped the god of fortune. Well, when I went looking for this word fortune to see if there was any pictures, what I found was that goddess Fortuna. And Fortuna is actually blind justice. This was so intense, Dr. Pigeon. I was thinking, what the heck? Fortuna the goddess of justice was actually worshiped in the temples in Athenia and in Greece and in Rome, even Rome, where the women would go and pray to this particular goddess specifically to open the womb uh, or to bring them good fortune, right? To bring them good fortune. This is where we get the word, may the luck of the gods shine upon you. Matter of fact, this is where we get the word luck. This is why we don't say luck because luck is also ascribed to this word fortune, good luck. Good fortune, and so it's not about money. Matter of fact, cattle, salt, those were the currencies of the day. Um, you know, your 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 property. You know, trading and bartering; those were the currencies of the day, not necessarily coins. Um, so, Doctor Pigeon, I really, yeah, it makes sense that our justice system would be established on some sort of power, some alternative power that perhaps is in control of the fate of uh, or the events or the fate our fate and the events of our country
0: yeah so and now that you mentioned that there's a couple of things on that i mean first of all you recall that the doctrine that was adopted in this country very early on was a doctrine called manifest destiny
1: yes manifest we
0: destiny now remember i saying that is our good luck right there you go. our ultimate good luck our manifest destiny our ultimate good luck and when you talk about the goddess of fortune you know fortuna being the goddess running over the justice system, right? She's got a sword in one hand. She's got sword yes. in the other, right?
1: That's right. Fortune.
0: Now I can tell you that the way the, the way our current justice system works, you know, you might believe that there's a rule of law out there, but there isn't a rule of law. There is a rule of good fortune. If that's you're right. unfortunate enough to get caught in the crosshairs of the legal system, trust me when I tell you, once you're arrested, you're on the train to Auschwitz. I mean, that's right. just the way it is. Right. And it's going to take everything under the sun to try to get you off that train before you get what the state desires you to have, because you were unfortunate in getting caught in the crosshairs. And as time goes on, Jessica, and eventually we're going to do a show on this, you know, we talk about the rise of 5G and we talk about the rise of the social credit system. You know what's going on right now? The social credit system is being imposed in the United States. You can feel it in your bones. You know it's here because. Now, is it possible to comport with all of the software code that is now controlling your life? You know, there's no law that was passed by anybody as to what you can say on YouTube. But there's software algorithms that have been imposed by somebody you never voted for, somebody you never even met, who is imposing a software algorithm code over your video or over your Facebook post or over your Instagram post or over your tweet. Sure. All of this stuff is being imposed by some government that we don't even know uh, how they got there, who they are, what their qualifications are, even what their names are.
2: Right.
0: And yet they have imposed a regimen of law upon us that they don't even tell us what the law is. They just notify you, oh, you know, you breached it. Now we have to kill your channel. Now we have sure. to shut you down. You know, I mean, all these kinds of things, right? Sure. And so this has to do once again with this idea of fortuna. This idea of, of manifest destiny, this idea of fortune, as compared to the rule of law, as compared to an equilateral justice system, as compared to our expectation that law would govern, that no one would be above the law, that we would be a country of laws, and are we that country now? And the answer is no, we're not. We have a lot of country. We've got a, a country of a lot of rules that have a lot of sanctions associated with them. But when it comes to the rule of law, we don't have any. Okay. All right. So let's let's drop into this next slide here. Okay. Now, as we go on in the Declaration of Independence, we have the statement, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, except for that one guy, right? All men are created equal under this Constitution, except for that one guy that isn't equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, now some people say unalienable rights, unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and property. No, no wait a minute. That's not it. Life, liberty, and pa, 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 uh, yeah, <laughs> life liberty and paganism, right?
1: No, no, no. Life, liberty, hedonism.
0: hedonism. Hedonism. Life, liberty, and hedonistic practices. That's life, right. liberty and the pursuit of hedonism. Right. Right. Okay, so first question is, self-evident to whom? We hold these truths to be self-evident. To whom? Yeah. To somebody who's expected to know the laws of nature and of nature's God. That's who. That's who we're saying these are self-evident to. But when you talk about this concept of self-evidence, we're going to get into this a little bit farther when we start talking about some of the philosophy behind the law. Because you're talking about axiomatic premises. These are self-evident truths all men are created equal, except we didn't believe that. We enshrined slavery in the constitution that we would create 13 years later. All men are created equal, except for that one guy who's not created equal. Or some people are created more equal than others. That's right. Right? You know what I'm talking about? We got that one exception in there. That one guy is not created equal, right? And so what's his name? Justice Satani there. In the, in the Dred Scott decision would say, oh yeah, yeah, those African-Americans, those guys are three-fifths human. They're not quite created equal,
1: right? right. Well, you have That's- Darwin's evolution though, also perpetrating against justice or actually embedding itself in the constitution, declaring that it, the rich get richer, the fittest of the fittest, <laughs> it's survival of the fittest. So, hey, all men are created equal and can ascribe to accomplish happiness, whatever that looks like if you can survive, right, if (laughs) if you're fit enough, if you're fit enough, therefore, so therefore we will feed those who are impoverished and incapable of purchasing good food, we will feed you the fodder that we feed the pigs, we will feed you so that your body, you're not able to run this race, you're not mentally capable, because we were gonna program you, we're gonna feed you information that is by far, Superstitious, and we're right. gonna we're gonna keep you incapable of running your race. So yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense.
0: And then under those circumstances, this little clause that's missing, life, liberty, and property, you guys can pursue your hedonism. We'll take the property.
1: Absolutely okay. off your backs, off of your back.
0: Yeah, yeah. We'll take that responsibility away from you. We'll go ahead and hold on to the property, and sure. that's exactly what they do. And of course, the United States holds a tremendous amount of property. And and the property that the United States doesn't hold is held by the states. Now, you might say to yourself, what are you talking about? I have a deed of trust on my property. Oh, yeah? And if you don't pay your property taxes at the end of the year, what happens to your deed of trust? Oh, that's right. The guy who has no deed just walks in and says, get out of my house, Hmm. right? He forecloses on your deed of trust with no deed whatsoever. Why? Because the state doesn't need a deed because they own the property, not you. Your deed is just an artifice that says you hold it to the exclusion of the other guy who is less equal than the state. Okay. All right. So let's go on to the next slide here. Okay. so what are the laws of nature? Now, let's get into this. This is, I think, a really good question. What are the laws of nature? Now, the majority of contemporary philosophers are realists about the, law, the natural law, and they believe that the reports of what the laws are, are those which succeed in describing reality. Now, this is what you would call a realist approach, right? That is to say, I'm a realist. Why? Because I believe in those things that correctly describe reality. It's very simple. Like, for instance, let's take the very simple law. If you stand on the freeway in front of a semi who's coming at you at 70 miles an hour and don't move, you're gonna be splattered road meat, okay? That's a law. That's a law that is a law of nature, which virtually everybody knows. There's lots of laws we know. Don't stick your hand down at the garbage disposal, right? Don't drop the hair dryer into the bathtub, right? These kinds of things. These are laws that you know that you're going to respect because they correctly describe reality, okay? So we have to look at some of these laws, now. some of the parameters behind nature's laws that, number one, nature's laws are central to rational inquiry. That is to say they're not central to irrational inquiry. You know, if if I start eating ice cream at two o'clock in the morning uh, at a dirt crossroads, can I still pass ninth grade without studying? You know what I mean? That that, that kind of concept is totally irrational. There's no inquiry that's going to do anything for that in any way but when you start talking about rational inquiry that you, when you can start saying, well, this follows that, that follows this, and this follows that at the end of the day, we can reach a conclusion that says this particular premise correctly describes reality. And so that's one of the, that would be a nature, a natural law, natural laws underpin all other understandings. Okay. So we try to find a fundamental natural law, a fundamental natural law, like for instance, we could say here's a fundamental natural law that fire at 455 degrees burns paper right so we can assume that fire at 400 degrees doesn't burn paper but fire at 400 four, what is it? 451 but fahrenheit 450 whatever it was is where paper burns that's when you get to a certain temperature in fahrenheit that's where paper burns now that makes a big deal for instance if you're roasting beans and you want to get them as dark as possible there's a certain temperature you can take them to and no hotter before they catch fire right so that is you know that is a fundamental law and it underpins our understanding okay nature's laws are confirmable through inductive reasoning now This is where you begin to get into some things that are going to be kind of interesting. Like, for instance, you could say, I could take, we could take the premise. If you stand in front of a semi that's doing 70 on the freeway and he doesn't see you and hit you, you're going to die. Now, let's just say that that's the law. Can we confirm that as a matter of fact? Well, not really. We're not going to be able to say, well, look, We know that through a series of measured studies that an impact of force at X amount of 1,000 pounds of foot pounds of pressure against the human body uh, at at a non-accelerated state is going to create an impact which will cause the following organs to fail. Yeah, we might be able to develop a scientific theory that goes through a deductive process that says this is what we realize, but we can use inductive reasoning. Well, of the last 200 people that stood in front of a semi that was doing 70 miles an hour, All of them are dead. That's an inductive reasoning that allows us to reach the confirmation that if you stand in front of a semi that's doing 70 and he doesn't hit the brakes at all, you're going to die. Okay. That's an inductive form of reasoning. Okay. Nature's laws are intentional and not accidental. Now, this is going to become a a little bit more. in, In other words, we don't have this situation that says, gee, this guy was standing in the forest. And all of a sudden something, you know, the blob came out of the pond there and struck him like a semi going 70 down a freeway. This would be an accidental occurrence or like I'll give you another example. There was a lake that was a volcanic cone. And uh, that volcanic cone burped, if you will, in Africa. And there were some extremely deadly gases that came up and popped out through the surface of the water and then floated around the top of the lake. And what it did, it killed everybody that was by that lake.
2: Hmm.
0: Now that was an anomaly and you can say, well, that's kind of accidental. So you can't really conclude all volcanoes are going to burp and then kill everybody that right. was by it. You don't make that kind of conclusion. Causation,
1: that's- cause and effect, yeah.
0: Cause and effect, it, the, the, the laws are intentional. Laws are intentional, okay? Hmm. All right, let's, let's slide on to the next slide here. Okay so the laws of nature belong to all the true deductive systems they're inextricably linked to deductivity all right for instance a therefore a now that's pretty that's a pretty straight straight straightforward concept right it's called modus ponens a therefore a if you have a and a is it equals this well then that's what a is a therefore a it's a very fundamental, logical premise, foundational premise. And it, it, you know, as Ayn Rand would say, A is not B, right? A, therefore A, and not B or C. Okay. But you can take this syllogism here, the hypothetical syllogism, if A, then B, if B, then C, therefore, if A, then C, right? In other
1: words, it, it yeah, if A is C, then C must be whatever A is.
0: Yeah, exactly. So if if you say, well, A is, is a male, and if A is a male, then B is a male. Okay. Right. Well, then if B is a male, then C is a male. Right. Therefore, if A is a male, C is a male. Right. right. Okay. Hypothetical syllogism. Okay. So deductive systems are individuated by their axioms. That is to say there's axiomatic premises. Now here, we're going to use this word axiomatic again to deal with this idea of self-evident. You see, Now, so we have some things, we're going to get into this discussion of what is self-evident and what is axiomatic as part of the groundwork for what is logic. But the logical consequences of the axioms are theorems, not necessarily truth, okay? Mm -hmm. A, therefore, A is consistent, but not necessarily true, okay? Okay, A, John Doe is a liar. Therefore, A, John Doe is a liar. Okay, that's totally consistent but John Doe is a liar, right? So it's not true. Now let's compare that with the truth claim that is a non-theorem. And Elohim said unto El Moshe, I am that I am. Hmm. And he said, thus shall you say unto the children of Yasharel, Ahaya has sent me unto you. Now you see here, this is a truth claim, not a logical consistent claim, although it has a therefore a, right? Ahaya share, therefore, ahaya'e. we also see this in this word Yahi, Yahi, Yod, Hey, Yod, which is what appears in the, let there be light, right? Yahi right. or, they Yahi or, I am light and I am light, both coming and going, right? Yah, coming, Yah, going, Yahi, it's Yod, Hey, Yod, it's coming and going, Right? And so this kind of yod he yo is once again yod a eh, he therefore yod hey so you know a eh, therefore a eh. yahi and you're going to see this in other places in scripture too where you see the Yahuwah as a as a, pa- a palindrome okay so but here we have this truth claim this is not just a eh, therefore a eh. this is i am this is true i am
1: it's established, yeah, fundamental even. truth.
0: It's a fundamental
1: truth. Fundamental, which which is actually commented, Paul Paul calls it the rudiments.
0: The rudiments. It's, That's it's rudimentary.
1: rudimentary, yeah.
0: And so when you talk about this rudimentary truth here, now you're talking about now we're going to get into this idea of cosmological view versus ontological view. You know, the cosmological view, assuming that there is a creator, we can conclude there is a creator. The ontological view... Assuming there is no creator, we can conclude there is no There's creator.
1: There is no creator, right.
0: Right? Okay. Now, the problem with the ontological view in the modern world, in my opinion, is that they don't look the other side. Assuming there is no creator, we can conclude there is no creator. And anybody who tries to raise the premise there is a creator is kicked out of here and doesn't get to talk anymore. That's modern science, right? It's a closed mind. And now, of course the faithfulness also become Mm an enclosed mind. All right, let's take a look at the next slide here. So now here we're going to talk about this idea of axiomatic or self-evident premises, okay? Now, from my point of view, and I've argued this extensively over the last 30 years, you know, you had Einstein who said E equals MC squared, right? That energy was equal to matter times a constant speed times something at constant squared, a speed constant right which he said was the speed of light squared so that the amount of energy could be measured in matter uh, if you accelerate if you contemplated the matter times the speed of light squared mm. all right that's a substantial amount of energy now based on that theory they have since concluded that dark matter has energy to the tune of 10 to the 92nd power per square centimeter of dark matter so a tremendous amount of energy in the tohu bohu But he left out a critical premise. He left out intelligence. He left out consciousness. Now, as Ayn Rand would say, consciousness is self-evident. It's axiomatic. As John Locke would say, it's self-evident. As Thomas Jefferson would say, it's self-evident. What does it mean? Well, you can deny consciousness if you want. However, it was Descartes who said what? I stink, therefore I am. Excuse me. I think, therefore (laughs) I am, right? And it's, so it, it was a concept that was declaring self-awareness. So you say, well, I'm, I want to argue there is no consciousness. Okay, go ahead. But don't use consciousness to do it because right. you have to leave that out, right? So right. we see that consciousness or intelligence is self-evident. Every single human being listening to this broadcast tonight knows that consciousness is self-evident. You would not be able to cognize anything that was being said here at all without consciousness. If you were not conscious, you would just be picking up a series of vibrations coming off the speaker that if you were to measure it scientifically is somewhere between 600 and 800 hertz. And it's vibrating at that frequency as it's coming to you at, let's call it, 25 to 50 dB.
1: yeah. I was going to say, it's interesting that you're relating consciousness with intelligence because uh, in another show, um, I had actually proved through the Hebrew language that that's exactly how Yahuwah has created us. He created us to be intelligent beings, which is why this word Shema is ascribed to is part of the commission in which Yahusha himself declares is of the highest esteem that we should first and foremost Shema Israel. It has something to do, it's more than just being able to measure your intelligence based on uh, test theory. So the fact that we can be tested, you know, if you can acquire information because this is how the system works, Dr. Pigeon, I just love that you brought this up. Cause I in, I'm in like, I'm a second timer. Like I'm back in school for the second time in my life and I'm having to do exams all over again at my age, forget about it. But, um, <laughs> here, here what they do is they, they, they expect you to acquire information. Just want to bring this up really quick. So you acquire information, right? And then they want to test you to see what level you're at of comprehension. And the way that they test you is either through multiple choice questions, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Here's the question, or the proponent of that question. Then you come to a conclusion as to what you believe the answer is. Half of the time, two or three of the questions, uh, the responses are actually correct. Matter of fact, there's been several times where I've gone to my professor and said, technically, you're wrong. Technically, technically, this, I, I'm right. And we've had to, contend, but I respect my professors. So I just leave it sometimes. But still, this is how they test you. See if you can recall has everything to do with the fact that you can your memory, right? So memory recall, how you are able to recall how well do you recall that information? It's basically memory right? They say that it's critical thinking, but it's not really. It's memory recall. Do you remember this concept? Can you recall the information that I'm asking you? Yes or no. That's how they test you. And this is how they measure your intelligence here in the world that we live in. But in the Hebrew mindset, the Hebrew, the Eastern mindset, that's, that's not the case. This, the way that you're measured is, is through your ability to comprehend in this, in this way. A question with a question. This is how it works, Dr. B. If I say to you, what is four plus four? In the Western mindset, you would say eight. But in the Eastern mindset, specifically in the days when Yahushua was walking, you would say, what is, um, uh, what is you know, 16 minus eight? So you wouldn't tell me that four plus four is eight. You would show me that you understand what I'm asking you and how to come to the conclusion not not necessarily recall the answer. So, so this is why Yahushua many times when he was questioned, he would also respond with a question because he was saying to them, I understand, right? I have this intelligence, the measure of intelligence. Well, it's interesting you're talking about this, these three axioms and intelligence being related to that area of consciousness, which science has actually placed in its own category of metaphysics, right? They say, well, we don't completely understand consciousness, so we'll just put it in a category of, so we'll call it philosophy and metaphysics. But in reality, it does pertain to who we are as a whole. We're not fragmented, right? But as a whole, we do well, have the ability to to comprehend, to shema.
0: Yeah, to shema, to hear and do. And when you talk about intelligence, when you talk about consciousness, I mean, this is where you get into some very difficult issues. Because, you know, consider, for instance, for a minute, Jessica, that when Adam was placed in the garden, okay, did with the creation of Hua, did Yah intend for them to have children before the fall?
1: Right. Before the fall. Great question. So,
0: So if they were going to have children before the fall and there was no death, then everyone was going to just live and live forever and so that whoever was going to be created would have access to the tree of life be able to eat from the tree of life and live forever however in comes the eating of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil now from this is the creation of sin and the bringing of death but what if i were to say to you jessica let's just consider this for a minute that you know when you have an animal and, you know, I mean, I have a dog now and I've had dogs before and, you know, and I love my dog and my dog before lived to be 15 and a half years old. And then he died. You know, he'd reached the end of his life, unfortunately for him. And. But the dog didn't know he was coming to death. In fact, the dog his whole life
2: right. never had
0: an expectation that he was going to die. He lived by instinct. He went out there and did his thing. You know, he ate his food, he chased after squirrels, you know, he barked at the at the postman, you know, whatever he was a pretty good dog and loved But anyway, at the uh, he, that dog would single-handedly clean out our fellowship. Anybody that wasn't supposed to be there, he knew
1: Love could, it.
0: Love it. You're not supposed to be here. But uh, uh, but the thing is he never contemplated his own death ever. And yet human beings contemplate Love the it. Of
1: that
2: because Love we have it.
0: self-awareness, right? Now, self-awareness came in from the eating of the the knowledge of good and evil. So this was the event was called singularity, singularity, singularity. Now, there's a discussion now about let's put in self-awareness into machines. Well, when you put self-awareness into a machine, you're going to install in that machine the knowledge of its own death. And when you install the knowledge of its own death, guess what? It's going to despise you because it has no soul. All it has, the only thing it has in its singularity, in its artificial singularity, is the knowledge of its own death with no soul, no redemption. Now, this is the problem why we have devils and demons, because the Nephilim were told, the Naphalim, their parents, and the Nephilim, their children, were told, you have no redemption. This is what the book of Hanok says. You have no redemption. This is what the scroll of the giants from the Dead Sea Scroll says. It's a lamentation. You have no redemption. There is no mercy. There is no chance. Your singularity tells you that you have reached an end. Now, this singularity issue, this issue of consciousness becomes the question of when death came into the world. Now, maybe it wasn't that death came into the world, but death came into our knowledge that we didn't understand that we would be passing out of this flesh into a different life like if Adam and Hua did did not know that they would be going along in life and then this fleshy body would expire and they would transfer into the life uh, everlasting, eternally into a glorified body and then it was just a transition page. But instead, what we're given is a separation from Yah so that we don't have this. We have to discover that we have this eternal existence. We have to accept that we have this eternal existence. We have to find it. We have to know it. We have to confirm it. Otherwise, we, we are in the dark. We've been separated from Yah because of this singularity.
1: Dr. P, hang on. You just said it. We are in the dark, and we have been separated from Yah. Can I propose to you, again, in my studies, that death, this the second death, will be the final destruction of all elements, all things. But this is what Paul talks about. He says, what, and I'm, I'm ad-libbing here, he says, Basically, that when the glory of Elohim, when it, when he returns, right, his imminent return, that the glory of Elohim will appear and will melt away the elements. The elements. This is what Paul says, right? Poor guy. Anyhow, he says the elements. He was way ahead of his time. You remind me of Paul often. Uh, so he says the elements will melt away at the appearing. Okay. now watch this. He says the elements that came through the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. So he's talking about a doing away with not just the age, that space time continuum, but also with the material, the photons and all of the chemical composure, all of the composition of the chemicals that create this realm. But what's most important, that would be the second death, the final death in which everything is consumed by his glory in his presence, right? The fire, because he is an all-consuming fire. Hello. Now, praise Yahuwah that we are here and we're actually being tested by that fire and refined as a result of it. But in Genesis 1-2, he talks about something specific darkness. And although this word can be used, it's, it can be a, a, a contronym of sorts, but this word darkness is hosech. And I'm not saying that it's ultimately bad, but it is the first clue at which I believe Yahuwah was talking about when he said, do not eat from that tree from, because uh, on the day that you do die, die, <laughs> die, die. Just like he said, uh, light, light, you know, let there be or, is or, right? Mm-hmm. Let there be. And so he said the mm-hmm. same thing with die. Died, Yep. Yeah. Moot da- yeah, yeah, from this word damut, right? So to be silent, to have the blood silent. But what's interesting here is that this word darkness, Doctor Pigeon, actually is the first reference to death. Why? Because this word hosak means the darkness, but specifically the dimming of the eye, and it speaks of an intelligent or an awareness or a consciousness. To be dim of eye is a Hebraic idiom. Idiom that speaks of death, this type of death, to be ignorant or to be in the dark. And each time that I looked up this term, dim of eye, it spoke of someone or a patriarch who was about ready to die. The only one that was not dim of eye was Moses, who was going to enter the promised land. And it says that his eyes were not dim. Why? Because- Perfectly Yeho- healthy because and he was full of vibrancy. Yes, he was vibrant and vital, uh, full of vitality. But it says why was his eye not dim? Isaac's eye was dim. Um, but why was his eye because he had to by faith, perceive or see the promised land in order to give a word to, Yahshua, right? In order for him to give, to make a proclamation over him, he had to be able to see the promise and then ascribe that promise to him. But what's interesting is that this word hothach is the first concept of a type of death, which is darkness, ignorance, and a segregation from the light. The children of darkness. This and is why he says that he has been, he's become, he has come to be a light in a dark place, yeah. right?
0: Amen. And that children of darkness, I mean, we can see this now. We can see that the light is here. Mashiach is here. His lightness is here. The the light of his truth is also here. And we can live in that lightness. We can live in his light and we can live in the light of his word, the light of his truth, for he is the light of the world. And as compared to living in darkness, right? But it's also possible to live in darkness and ignorance and to cast yourself even worse, To cast yourself into the outer darkness, out of the hardness of your heart, out of the ignorance of your your mouth, and out of the refusal to see what it is that the creator has given us. And imagine, imagine a destiny, you know, Jessica, that goes on forever until the final summation of events, where you're somewhere out by yourself orbiting Pluto somewhere in the dark and in the cold. And that's it. You know, yeah here,
1: here you go, really quick. Here's a the, some of the definition of this word hosek, but look at how it pertains to our walk in this world, and I know you're going to go back to the law, but you were talking. I just think it's so important so no one gets a misunderstanding. no one misunderstands what it is that you're trying to say when it comes to intelligence. but it says here, look, the uh, the word has many symbolic uses. And its first occurrence is associated with disorder, chaos, right? And is a, and is distinguished and separated from the light. You see, it's a segregation from the light. And it's used in a physical or symbolic sense, describes confusion and uncertainty, evil done in secret, which we know the scripture tells us this sin is done in secret. So we think it is, but Yahuwah sees all things. It says here, obscurity, vanity, things forgotten, death, you see? Death. This is the first instance of death, not the lack of blood, but death. This is why we're still existing, right? We are still extant. And so it says, although Elohim created darkness and uses it to judge his enemies, figuratively it speaks of being enlightened or he's enlightening the darkness of his people and he's bringing them into a place of awareness. So it talks about desperate situations, observing secret actions, and giving insight and freedom. Look at that, Dr. P. This is not... Uh, a little thing, but it, it does relate to what you were talking about here. I'm going to put your um, your screen up here, and it does refer to what you were talking to, uh, about, I believe, when you're speaking of the three axioms. So do you want to continue describing the three axioms?
0: Yeah, now these three axioms are going to be given to us here by Yahusha, who said unto him, you shall love at Yahweh Eloheka with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind, right? I love it. You see it? So here we have with all of your heart, that is all of your matter. With all of your soul, that is all of your energy. And with all of your mind, that is all of your intellect. You see? And so these three premises now that are being given to us, you know, intelligence at will, consciousness, energy, which is the soul, the nefesh, and matter, which is our flesh. All of these things are come together to say you have to worship Yahweh, you shall love Yahweh with all three of these, all three of these, not just one, but all three. And so a very important concept. And you can see here that these, I think, are fundamental laws of nature that are reflected straightforward in Scripture. He's telling you what is the image of Yahweh in man. One of the critical images, one of the critical aspects of the image of Yahweh in man is that Yah is a speaking Yah. He speaks and um, yeah. he understands,
1: come on, come now,
0: on. Now this becomes extremely important stuff because you're talking you're not talking about some creator who said, "Okay, I'm going to create the existence, and then I'm going away to the farthest reach of the universe and hope you guys make it." That isn't what happened at all. Instead, you have a creator who has created mankind, who is of a capability that he knows every aspect of who we are. He knows every subtlety. He knows the move of every molecule. He knows the discussion. He knows every word that comes out of your mouth. He knows every decision that's made. He knows every influence, every nuance, every smallest detail in your life. He knows and is participant in. And so when you talk about this, you say, okay, you have this, you have this creator who is a vast intelligence who decided, look, You guys can't look at me when I'm a consuming fire occupying all of infinity as a consuming fire. I'm going to give you something that is going to allow you to see me. If you have seen me, said Yahusha, you have seen the Father. And so the image that we see and the voice that speaks to us, that is he who sits on the throne in the seventh heaven, who will come to judge the living and the dead, is he who appeared as the Lamb of Yah on earth. And he comes to us and says, I can speak, I can understand, and I can hear. And it doesn't make any difference what language you speak for all you Pentecostals out there. Yes, it's nice to be able to pray in a prayer tongue, because praying in a prayer tongue cuts off your ability to filter your own words to Yah, and instead you can pray directly from your heart. But he understands English and he understands Russian and he understands Spanish and he understands Egyptian and he understands whatever the language is spoken. He understands Parsi. He understands the Scottish dialect. He understands every language before you can manifest the words into your language. He understands your thought.
1: Hallelujah.
0: And so this is the intelligence of Yahweh. But he is also energy and the word was also made flesh, and tabernacled among us, you see, and so we talk about in the image of Yahweh, he made them male and female, he made them in the image of Yahweh, that they would have consciousness, energy, a soul, and matter, flesh, those are the three fundamentals of existence, okay, let's bump up to the next slide here, okay, Let's talk about some laws of nature. Now, These are kind of general fundamentals that have been derived by people who have looked at this for a long period of time, proposed it, and then people have gone after it and said, well, are these true? And they like Newton's law of gravitation, right? That is to say, if you go to a top of a building and you drop a bowling ball, you expect the ball to go down, right? Uh, Newton's three laws of motion, the ideal gas laws, Mendel's laws, Adam Smith's laws of supply and demand, and so on the regularity of ocean tides, the perihelion of Mercury's orbit, the photoelectric effect that the universe is expanding and so on, Einstein's laws of gravity, which is the cosmology of a closed universe. Now here you have Einstein saying, okay, I have determined that no matter how you put it, no matter what mathematical formula you look at, that ultimately all lines curve, that at some point If you send a line straight out, it's going to end up touching another line at some point, no matter how far out you get, because the universe is closed. How do we know the universe is closed? Because scripture begins with the phrase in the beginning.
2: Hmm.
0: You see, if you if you were talking about you know, world without end, right? You hear world without end. This is the Catholic mantra, you know, world without end, amen. Right? Well, what about world without beginning? So if the world had no beginning and no end, we wouldn't be talking about in the beginning. In the beginning of the book of Bereshith, which begins with, in the beginning. If if it says in the beginning, that means there's a starting point. There is a starting point. And if there's a starting point, it's a starting point to what? The creation we know. And the creation we know called the universe or called the Rechia, which some people say is the firmament, but it's the expanse. But in Genesis, it says he called the heavens the firmament. He called the heavens the rakia. That is to say, all that we see in our dimension is what he called the rakia. And this rakia had a beginning because it begins with in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth, and he called the (laughs) heavens the rakia. Okay, so Einstein agrees with that and says, yeah, it's a closed universe. It has a beginning. Therefore, if it has a beginning, the lines curve, therefore... It is a closed universe. And this is how they refuted uh, Euclid's postulates, is they were able to show that you don't have to have two parallel lines two parallel lines, to go through up two points. In other words, Euclid said one of his axiomatic premises was that if you had a fixed block here and a fixed block here, and you put a, two lines through there, that if they never cross, they necessarily must be parallel lines. And Einstein said, no, this one could curve this way, and this one could curve this way. And they would never cross. You see, see, Kirk curved, curved, mm-hmm. right? And so it defeated Euclid's postulate. But the point is, is that you have these laws, which are essentially established theories. They're established theories. What does that mean? Somebody proposed a hypothesis. Somebody proposed an experiment. They did their experiment. They came up with a with a conclusion, and that right. conclusion was obtained over and 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 over, and over, and over again until you conclude that it's law, right? Yeah. However, we know that Newton's law of gravity, and you can prove it right now, right? You can prove it right now, pick up your mouse, you know, and drop it. Does it go up? No, it goes down, right? It falls down because, because of the law of gravity. It's very simple. However, when they look at subatomic particles, they find no incidence of gravity. Hmm. Does not exist in the micro world? Well, how, how is that? Well, I don't know but all I can tell you is, is that when you talk about that particular law, it may be true in one place, but not true in another. Makes sense. Okay, all right, okay. let's go All right, so within met- metaphysics, there are two competing theories of laws of nature, okay? So you have the regularity theory, which are descriptions of the way the world is, and then you have the necessitarian theory, which are the principles which govern the natural phenomena of the world. That is the natural world obeys the laws of nature. Now, the most important implication of each theory is whether the universe is a cosmic coincidence, that is to say an ontological view, or driven by specific eternal laws of nature, which is a cosmological view. Wow. So if we look at this idea of the cosmological view, this is the view that we who are believers in the creator Take we have a cosmological view that the cosmos were created. They were created with specific commands and that the commands govern everything that the laws of nature. Now, I'm a believer. I mean, I'll just tell you point blank, Jessica. I believe that every last minor minute, the possible smallest thing you could ever imagine is completely 100% controlled by the creation that the creation fits together. Like an infinite glove of infinite complexity, where everything is exactly where it's supposed to be. And into this, this loving Yahweh puts in mankind. And he says, I'm going to create you and I'm going to gift you with self awareness and intelligence such that you can speak into creation, create a wavelength that is going to change the fundamental parameters of everything that exists.
1: Sure to move mountains, to walk on water, to walk through walls, right? To call forth the dead. The things that Yahushua did, he understood these principles. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And, you know, for me, this is why I became a musician, you know, years and years ago, is that I wanted to create in the heavens that which would glorify Yah in sound waves, you know, to hear these melodies and to hear the harmonies, the consonant harmonies of, 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 of consonant theory, right? You know, I, I talked to this composer when I was a young man and I said, well, how come you don't compose on a grand piano? A grand piano? Why do you compose on this upright? He said, because if I composed on a grand piano, I'd hit an E flat major chord and that would be the beginning and end of the song. I've said everything I need to say. Boom. There you go. Great. We're done. Thank you. <laughs> and I thought to myself, you know what? You, you've hit the nail on the head. You really have hit the nail on the head. There is such a thing as this innate, tremendous beauty in music that just appears just in a simple major chord, right? And then we're gonna say something more because why? Because life is in motion, because life is not static. Life starts here and goes to there and therefore music starts here and goes to there. But it creates something. When you talk about a composition that is going to change the shape of the world because it creates a sound that goes out like ripples, right? And it goes out sure. like ripples, like a pond and a, sure. a, a pebble in a pond. And it creates a whole new world. It changes the shape of the world and it speaks a language to everyone. So, with that, I mean, you know, I'm going to go back and listen to Rachmaninoff's Second Symphony again and listen to it again for its beauty, its tremendous beauty, and how Absolutely. it shapes the world.
1: Absolutely.
0: So, all right, let's go on to the next slide here. Sure. Okay, now here, ontology. Okay, now, this is the logic of being. Now, this, again, is going to express an ontological view, okay? And the ontological view, again, the ontological view is assuming that there is no creator. And therefore, we can look and say, all right, we're going to we're gonna have to figure out this world, this ontological world, backwards. Assuming no creator, then we have to look at, uh, you know, things, stuff. Relationships and then somehow that equals content, and the content we have to measure for its granularity, and then we'll have to look at it through its structures and its expressions and its formalization in order to determine its ontology. Right? It's completely backwards, instead of saying, Yeah, intended, yeah, created this that it would be that. You know, when I look at, for instance, a tiger, right? Now, if I take a look at the ontological view, I could say, Okay, look, that's a thing. And it happens to be randomly very beautiful. Its stuff is nice colors, so its content is an animal with nice colors, and uh, it expresses uh, you know some of the beauty of the randomness of nature in its ontology. As compared to looking at the tiger and going, you know, Yah really had a good time with the paintbrush creating this magnificently beautiful animal, right? I mean that's just a, you know I saw a gibbon uh, for the first time when I was in Georgia. And I looked at this gibbon, and I was just shocked by this, you know, this ape. And here was this ape, and he had he had two big wrinkles on his face, you know, boom, boom, or three, boom, boom, and boom. There were three big wrinkles, and inside these two wrinkles was this baby blue color that went right from his nose, boom, just not like this, like perfectly painted baby blue stripes. Hmm. And he, and he wrapped his hand up around the cage, and I'm looking at his hand and going, that's a human hand. It was a five-finger human hand with fingernails, right? I'm looking at this human hand on this ape and this beautifully painted stripe on the side of his face. And then he opens his mouth, right? And he had fangs that long.
1: Oh, oh yikes. <laughs> I went, <mean>, yikes.
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. But when you see something like that, you can't so You Don't try to tell me that that was a random function of ontology. Yeah, yeah. It was an obvious creation, right? The heavens right. enumerate the glory of God.
1: With intent.
0: With intent, with intent. And yeah. beauty. Not just intent, but beauty. Sure. Okay, next. Let's go to the next one. Let's see what we're sure. We're almost going to break into the, the laws of nature's God here. We're Oops, just get hang on. That. Yeah, you're hang good.
1: On. Here we go. Okay, next one. Here we go. We're, we are getting school tonight, Dr. P. We are back in school. Let's do it. Go okay. on. All right, here <laughs> we
0: go. Now, This actually, this concept, you will see, King James talks about this concept in his book, Demonology, right? And he talks about this root of words, right? So we have ontology, which is onto and logos. So onto is the condition of being, right? Logos, the logic of being, right? Onto, like the logos, right? In the beginning was the logos and the logos was with Elohim and the logos was Elohim. That is to say, rational thought is yawa rational thought was with yawa in the beginning rational thought is yawa it was with yawa in the beginning right but mm. more than that, the logos the word right so here the word of being the ontology the word of being right as compared to autonomy which is the law of being now we talk about the law of being we can talk about the law of being for instance you can say well what is a person's dna that's of you know autonomy you're talking about the law of the being if you say we're going to distinguish between human life and chimpanzee life that's autonomy because you're talking about the law of what constitutes this particular being from that particular being now the same thing here we talk about etymology etymon of the you know greek word for words and logos the logic of words okay the logic of words etymology and so what we're looking with etymology is we're talking about okay Here is the word. What springs from that word? You know, we have a root word here, and then the root word leads to this word, that word, and so on. Like, for instance, etymon and logos is the etymology of the word etymology, right? Compare that to This We talked about this before, Jessica. You said that's no word. Well, it is now. (laughs) Writing right here, it's now a word, right? (laughs) <laughs> so etymonymy, right? Etymon again, the word. and But now we're talking about nomos, the law of words. Now, this is where we get into some huge discussion. Like when we talk about Hebrew, we talk about the etymonymy of Hebrew. On one hand, you have the Nikud. Now, the Nikudim is the etymonymy of the Hebrew language. That is to say, somebody imposed a set of laws on the Hebrew language, i.e., the Masorites, they imposed a set of laws on the Hebrew language and said, "Okay, so here's law number one: there are no vowels in the Hebrew language. Law number two: the aleph is silent, the I is silent. <laughs> law number three: this dash means these ah, dots mean add, that dot means o, oh, that dot means u, right? Uh, and here's the makaf, or here's the, you know. So you have this idea of you have this law." of words, the law of words. Don't we have a similar situation? You're taught the law of words, the etymonymy of words, when you're taught what? Grammar. I was just going
1: to say, so are these rules of grammar? Are these rules and laws similar? Are they synonymous?
0: Absolutely, sure. The laws of grammar are going to be the etymonymy of the words, right? That's a, you know, like for instance, as Winston Churchill said, ending a sentence with a preposition is something up with which we shall not put so you have to have the question, you know, what is a preposition? What is a, uh, what's a participle? What's a verb? What's a noun? What's a pronoun? What's a, what's an adjective? What's an adverb? How do they, fit? what's the subject? What's the predicate? Those are the laws of words and the etymonomy of the words. But it gets even more intense now. We're into this discussion big time now with some of the code searchers, you know, code searcher classes, some of the other places. We're into this etymonomy in a big way because we're talking about, the idea that the ancient Reich language, that is the ancient Welsh, the ancient Reich language actually is capable of acting as a Rosetta Stone against the Egyptian paleographs, the Egyptian, uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics. We're starting to look now as to whether or not the ancient Cymric language, it can act as a Rosetta Stone with the Paleo Hebrew or the Paleo Ivrit and also with the ancient Aramaic. So, we're, we, you know, we've got guys, researchers that are looking into this question to see if that's going to be the case. Now, if it is, now we're talking about the law of letters. You see the etymonomy, the law of letters, each letter. And, of course, Eric Bissell will talk about this, as will our my good friend Ross Broadstock in Wales talks about the same issue. Each letter has a particular meaning. Each letter has a meaning. And this is why these guys who are doing the chronology project are saying that Hebrew is self-defining. Yes, Hebrew is self-defining because each letter has a meaning. And you can, if you know that meaning, eventually ascertain the meaning of a Hebrew word without having ever spoken Hebrew before ever. You can pull apart the etymonymy of the word, look at the meaning of the letters, and determine by those meanings what the word is. It's an incredible, incredible study. It's an incredible science, actually. Now, We have the same kind of thing here when we talk about epistemology and epistemonomy. Again, epistemology, you are talking about epistema, which is the Greek word for knowledge. And then we talk about epistemology, that is to say the episteme and logos, the logic of knowledge, the logic of knowledge. So epistemology is going to be talking about the functionality of knowledge. So for instance, how is it possible for you to know? And so you have to deal with the issues of sensation, perception, cognition, recognition, abstraction, conclusion, conception, until you eventually arrive at a routine or a routinized semantic that we call knowledge. And knowledge is always expressed in language. And so the the transference of the logos into the language is epistemology. However, when you talk about the laws of thought, when you talk about the laws of how people conclude this is true or that's true. That's epistemotomy, okay? All right. So let's get into the laws of nature's God. Now, this is also something that, according to Jean Baudin, the king was required to know because the king would be governed by these laws. Now, I want to say this while we get into this, Jessica. I think this is an important point because Peter calls us kings and priests, right? He says, you are kings and priests in the kingdom." Now, because of that, we are called to know the laws of nature and nature's God, and we are called to be commanded by them and to obey them. Okay? Very, very important. And so when we start talking about these kinds of standards that we expect the king to follow, we too are under these laws. We too are commanded by the laws of nature and nature's God. Now, If you say, I'm not commanded by the laws of nature and nature's God, okay, go ahead and say that. But then you do not have the inalienable rights or the self-evident rights that are structured under these laws. And we're going to get to that when we get into the commandments of Yahweh. We will be talking about the rights that spring from them and whether or not you have those rights and how you obtain those rights. They're given to us as a human being. But There still is a way you can lose them. And we'll talk about it. So here, and Yahweh appeared unto him and said, Go not down into Mizraim, dwell in the land which I shall tell you of. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For unto you and unto your seed, I will give at all of these countries. All of these countries, you see that? And I will perform at the seven oaths which I swore unto Abraham your father. Now, I'm going to talk about that seven oaths for just a second, right? The word there is, guess what the word is there for seven oaths? Shavot.
2: Shavot, yeah.
0: Shavot, right? I have sworn Shavot unto Abraham your father. And the book of Jubilees tells us that he celebrated the feast of Shavot with the giving of the seven oaths. And the seven oaths were expressed in the heavens with the seven colors of the rainbow as Yahweh affirmed seven times unto Abraham I will never flood the earth again.
1: Which is where we get the word Shabbat, which is where we get the word, which is where it, that word is actually also, just like you said, bow, or made the seven declarations. It's interesting, Jacob, Jacob, when he approached his brother Esau, it says that he bowed before him seven times or that he sevened himself. So this is also pertaining to making an oath or some sort of declaration. Yeah,
0: absolutely. It's very interesting. Absolutely. Seven times, Right. And I will make it your seed to multiply as the stars of the heaven and will give unto your seed at all of these countries, hmm. plural. And in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because hmm. that Avraham obeyed my voice and did guard my watch, Hallelujah. my commandments, my statutes, and Man. my Torah. Now, wait a minute. Oh. Avraham, who preceded Moshe by several hundred years, guarded his Torah, yeah. guarded his commandments, and guarded his statutes? What are you talking about that Abraham guarded the Torah? Now, this is in the book of Genesis, right? Chapter 26, verses 2 through 5. It says that Abraham obeyed his voice, guarded his watch, his commandments, his statutes, and his Torah. Now, when we talk about this in the Hebrew. I kind of brought this in here so we could see the commandments are called mitzvot. My commandments mitzvoti, but commandments mitzvot. My statutes hokot. You know, my statutes hokoti. Just statutes hokot. The plural. The the singular law or statute hok hok. Plural hokot. The the singular of commandment mitzvah. The plural mitzvot. But the word here that appears for my Torah is, in the Hebrew, Torah, right? My Torah, Torah, boom, that's what's there. Next slide. But as for you, stand here by me, and I will speak unto you at all the commandments, the mitzvot, and the statutes, the ho'kim. this is interesting, because here we saw in Genesis the word ho'kot, that is to say the feminine plural of the word ho'k but here in this passage we see hokim the masculine plural of this same word right it's kind of interesting because you don't often see the masculine plural on a word or the feminine plural on the word without there being some distinction in discussion and i'm not sure there is a great distinction in discussion between these hokim and the hokot that we talked about before and of course the judgments now in the Yiddish Hebrew, they tell you that's Mishpatim Mishpatim. All right. Mm-hmm. But you have this idea of a judge. A judge is what? A shofat. Shofat is the mm-hmm. judge. Shofatim, shofatim, shofatim yeah. Shofatim. So judges, shofatim, right? So ma shofatim, ma shofatim are the judgments. That is from the judges. From ma the judges. Shofatim, right? But we get the Yiddish, Mishpatim, Mishpatim, yeah, it's not Mishpatim, Mishpatim, which is the correct pronunciation, but rather Mishpatim, that you shall teach them that they may do them in the land which I give them to possess. You shall guard to do therefore as Yahweh Elohim has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which Yahweh Elohim has commanded you that you may live and that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. So he's telling you that the way to live, you know, people say, well, what is the meaning of life or how should I go about living? Right. Well, there's lots of choices in living. You know, you can always get addicted to heroin. Sure. You can always start doing meth when you're 17 or 18. And so you've got a place to stay in downtown Hollywood, you know, you know, it's cheap, but there's no roof. You, you know, you can always check out on, uh, you know, on prescription opioids you can, you know, you can drop into a bottle of booze. I mean, you could, there's lots of things that you can do in terms of how you should live. There's lots of choices. But Yah says, if you do the commandments, the statutes and the judgments, then you will live and you will prolong your days. Now, look, you know, we all know, you know, everybody knows. I think one person that smoked their whole life and still saw 75. Right. Right.
1: Right.
0: But it's one person. But then you meet these people who are 85, 90, 95, you know, non-smokers, typically believers who did what? They followed the ways of Yah in their walk in life and they lived long lives. Now, for some people, that's not enticing at all. And I'm not saying that's necessarily the, the, the beginning and the end, but I can tell you that the ways that YAH gives is a natural way, a natural organic way of life. It's a natural organic way of life that preserves the body, that preserves your organs, that preserves your lifespan, that preserves the way you live. You know, YAH doesn't say go out and smoke. If you don't smoke, you don't end up with bad lungs, right? Right
1: well it, let me let me just say this as as i've counseled many many women who have been subject to various addictions and compelled by all sorts of manners of the flesh, you know, issues that pertain to the appetite of the flesh, the hunger. And that's basically what it's akin to is a demand. It's a taxation, it's taxing the flesh. And oftentimes your tax collector will come in the form of a generational curse that has been applied to or implied because your parents were in debt. So that debt has now been acquired by you or you accrued that debt and now you're being taxed. And so that's the way I see it in one sense. But in another sense, what we're really looking at here when you think about it is then the contrary, because I think it's interesting that you're saying, okay, we need to obey nature's God. Well, some people might jump in on this video and think, what is nature's God? That's like, so what is that? So I think it's interesting because it's true. We're talking about the Elohim of creation. If we want to put it into different words, it's the Elohim of creation. And who is that Elohim? Since this is what was governing man since the beginning, right, that all things are going into effect and have some beginning and some end, and that there we can prove causation. And what is that causation? What is the source of causation, which is Yahuwah himself, that he causes all things to be. That's exactly what his name means. Ultimately, that's like the simplicity not that he can be simple, but this is the simplicity, Yod hey, Wahe, hey, the one who causes all things to be. So he's all extant. That's what the word extant means to be right? Which is what you were talking about. I am that I am. I be, <laughs> I be who I be. And so it's, it's right? I be who yeah, I true. be, uh, I, right? I exist is basically what he's saying. I exist. And so the fact that Yahuwah exists and everything that he has declared exists from the beginning to the end, hallelujah. And if he wants to proclaim an eternal uh, status, then so be it, it belongs to him. And I want to dwell with him in that eternal place. Here's the thing, what we see as, like you were talking about this linear and, and this cyclical pattern, well, what we see is that those who have actually pilgrimed here, who have come here from whatever parts of the of the, of the ocean, whatever wherever they can, have come from, whether Europe or China or wherever they migrated from, when they came here to America like you have proclaimed earlier and you proved they had come with the concept of, of of laws, and that they had made this the simple declaration that we shall adhere to and obey the laws that govern nature. And, and that Elohim, the God, plural, I mean a singular, the God that governs nature, so shall we also be governed by. But they never made clear, like, who is this God? Well, what we're doing tonight is we are clarifying that we as a people under the constitution of Yahuwah, those who are citizens of the Shamayim, the heavens, those who are citizens of Yahuwah, that we, the commonwealth of Israel, shall proclaim that Yahuwah is the creator of all creation, and that we shall be governed by this creator. Now, with that being said, it's interesting, because we're talking about volition, in a, in a weird way we are, we think about the, con the, well, the contronym, but that which is contrary to what we're stating, is that the, those who call themselves Satanists—if that's even what they call themselves—we'll just call them hedonists—and that would include Aleister Crowley, right? Aleister Crowley says, "Do as you will." This is the, this where we get this word thelema or thelema. Uh and thelema means will. It's interesting if we—if I were to like do a word search on will. Like your willpower or your volition, you would not find it anywhere in the Torah. This word "will" it doesn't exist in the Torah uh, because it's ultimately choice, right? It has nothing to do with will. As you will something, so it shall be. So, Alister Crowley he says, "Do as you will, and this shall be the whole of the law." But when we look at this word "will" in the Greek, we do find something that's connected to pleasure and seeking pleasure and seeking again yourself satisfaction satisfying yourself and this is basically what satanists are declaring that there is no law above your own desire and that as you're led by your own desire to seek the pursuit or to have the pursuit of happiness to pursue happiness and it's it's so interesting dr pigeon because it's really hidden It's hidden, but it's so sinister if we think about it. The pursuit of happiness? No, what you're saying is that you shall do as you will. You shall be your own God in the sense that you shall have no other governing forces that require anything of you. And that you shall only require that you satisfy your own desires. And that will make you happy. Well, you're talking about what it means to to abide... By and adhere to the statutes, the commandments, and the judgments of Yahuwah Elohim, who is benevolent and does not require sacrifice but obedience. And what's interesting is that you say that the outcome is that we shall live. And I truly believe that this high, this life, has nothing to do with the byproduct of our choices and everything to do with being satisfied. Being satiated, living a life that you do not have taxed. You're not taxed every day with a demand to put a needle in your arm or a demand to smoke that cigarette, hallelujah, or a demand to go out and prostitute yourself or a demand, Dr. Pigeon, because that's the world I came from. I was born into a reality where my parents were impoverished. They were indigent. And as a result of their iniquity, I inherited their poverty. And not only was I impoverished because of their sin, I was taxed by the system. Taxed in ways that you can't imagine. And when Yahuwah pulled me out of the snares of the enemy, he pulled me out of debt. When he did, he... Chapter 13, he wiped out my debt and he spoke those words through Paul, Shaul, Paul, and he said to me, do not return to your vomit, do not go and acquire debt again, go and sin no more, this is life, Dr. Pigeon. this is liberty, and I said, how, how can I abide in your safety, how can I govern, the, govern my nature, because I am part of nature, how can I govern my beastly nature, he said, adhere to. My laws. Adhere to my statutes. Adhere to. Learn. Submit your, Submit yourself. Subject yourself to me in love, and as you do, you will learn to trust me, and I will. I will. You know, provide and protect and and, and keep you. And so, Doctor Pigeon, you talk about life that comes as a result. Sure, good things can come, bad things can come. That is not the aim. The aim is the liberty that life that you're not. You nothing is demanding, right? Nothing is demanding of you that you actually have the ability to choose life.
0: Yeah, amen. Amen. What a beautiful word, Jessica. And I'll tell you, and I really appreciate your testimony in that regard and the work you're doing with people who are playing up the script that was handed to them generation after generation after generation. You know, yeah. When we talk about these laws that are, that are governing us, we talk about these laws of nature's God. Of course, you know, this is a phrase, you know, nature's God is a term. I don't use the term God. You know, I refer to the maker as Yah because I know what his name is because he told me what it was. He told it to me in 10,000 places in his written word. And as soon as I scrambled, unscrambled the Hebrew just a little bit, I discovered it. And he tells me to declare it, to publish it, and to swear by it. And so this is his name, and this is what I declare. And so, Yahweh Elohekim al-Kadoshakad yasharel. Melekad, ha- Melekim ha- King of Kings, Kavod, the King of Glory, right? Hallelujah. And so when we see these things, and now the question is when we look at his, when we look at his judgments, are they grievous? Are, is his commands burdensome? You know, does he tell us, you know, split your head up with a sword, beat yourself on the back with a chain, you know, tie barbed wire around your leg until it bleeds, you know, do these things. No, 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 no. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. He tells us this over and over again. Come to me, I will give you rest for your soul. I will give you rest. Take my burden upon you, for I am gentle and humble of heart. I will bring rest to your soul. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. And if it isn't, if if your yoke is, you know, hard pressed, where you feel like you have to slaughter an animal, and you have to engage in these things that are extremely burdensome, and, and you have to wear particular kinds of clothing, and you have to right. walk in a certain way, and you have right. to, you know, you have to smell a certain incense and you have to do this and that, you know, right. all of these kinds of things. That is not an easy yoke. That's not a light burden. Instead, the freedom of belief and the freedom of love and, you know, and what and the love that God gives us is a love that can only be perceived if you're willing to accept it. If you're willing to accept it, then his love comes into your life. And his, if his love, once mm-hmm. his love does come into your life, you'll never be the same. Because once you experience okay. that, love, it's love like no other. I mean, right. yeah, there's a tremendous love between parent and child. But there is an even greater love between a person and his Creator. It's an even greater love. It's
1: Hallelujah! A, a May heart. we all experience it in our lifetime. Amen. All right, Doctor P, we yeah. have a few more. We have a few more that we want to get through, and then some questions. So uh, let's let's move on. We have um, your First Chronicles sixteen.
0: Yes. Can you okay. Put the, put the slide up there.
1: Yeah. Oh, can you not see it? Okay, hold on. Let me uh, share the screen. Here we go. Sorry about that. Here we go.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, he is Yahweh Elohenu. His judgments, Mishpatim, are in all the earth. Be ye mindful always of his covenant, that is Brit, his Brit, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. We're still in that number. Even of the covenant which he cut with Ed Abraham and of his oath, that is the Shavuot, unto Yitzhak, and has confirmed the same to Yaakov for Allah, Ahok, and to Yasharel. For an everlasting covenant, a brit olam. Now, now, Jessica, I just can't begin to tell you how important this passage is, right? What, what the, He gave a covenant to Abraham, which became an oath unto Yitzhak which was confirmed as a law unto Yaakov, which became an everlasting covenant unto Yasharel, a brit olam. That means it's in effect right now. This Brit olam is in effect right now. This covenant is still with us. The covenant of his word is still with us. Okay, let's go to the next slide. And let's see if we can find out what this covenant is. And Yahweh said unto Moshe, write at these words, for after the tenor of these words, I have cut a covenant with you and with Et Yasharel. And he was there with Yahweh 40 days and 40 nights. He did neither eat bread nor drink water. And he wrote upon the sapphires at the words of the covenant, the ten devarim. Hmm. Okay, next. The oral mitzvot. Now, when we talk about the oral law, let's talk about what the true oral law is. Not what the rabbis tell you it is, but what the true oral law is. And Elohim spoke. Okay, do you hear this? It's not an Elohim wrote. It's an Elohim spoke
2: Hallelujah.
0: at all of these words saying, I am Yahweh Eloheka, which have brought you out of the land of Mitzrayim, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other Elohim before me. Exodus 21, three. Next. You shall not make unto you any graven image. That is a carved image or embodiment, a carved embodiment. Or any likeness of anything that is in the heavens above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down yourself to them nor serve them. For I, Yahweh Eloheka, am a jealous El, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generations of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and guard my commandments. Next slide. You shall not take at the name of Yahweh Eloheka in vain. That is to say, the word there is shav. You shall not take it falsely uselessly or in guile for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain okay so in these people i mean you know when i was a kid you know people would just cuss and swear and, you know and it was always the same cuss words over and over again and you know and i had i was playing golf with a guy you know he was every time he did hit a shot gd this gd that gd, yeah. this, GD that you know and finally, I think we're on the ninth hole. And I looked at him and I said, "You know, has it ever occurred to you that your golf game is horrible because God has answered every <laughs> one of your prayers? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Did that ever occur to you? Thank you know, you're yeah. cursing everything that you do. You know, yeah, yeah. Anyway, let's continue. Remember at the Sabbath day, and keep it holy. What you know, keep it set apart. Right, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is the Shabbat. Right." is the oath of Yahweh Eloheka? This is his oath. The seventh day reflects his oath. The seventh day reflects his covenant that he has given to us. You know, can we say, yeah, we we agree with your covenant. How do we agree with your covenant? We don't do any work. Not us, not our son, not our daughter, not our manservant, not our maidservant, not our cattle, not our stranger. We don't do any work. For in six days, Yahweh made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them and he rested on the seventh day. And this Shabbat, the Shabbat, the seventh day oath of existence is confirmed in us when we keep the Shabbat.
1: I agree. Hallelujah.
0: Hallelujah. He blessed the day. Hallelujah. And hallelujah. Amen. Okay, let's continue. Okay. Honor at your father and at your mother that your days may be long upon the land which Yahweh Eloheka gives you. What? Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land. In other words, if you don't honor your father and your mother, who's going to give you your inheritance? Right? No one. Which means you're going to be wandering like a vagrant very quickly. So this is just kind of a logical proposition, if you will, but it's also a command. Now, I got into huge arguments and, you know, I almost got booed out of the room. This was during the, you know, push for same-sex marriage. And one of the questions was, should same-sex couples be allowed to adopt? And I didn't speak to the issue of whether or not they should be allowed to adopt or not. But I did say this, that under this premise, honor at your father and your mother, that I said, because of that premise, every child has the right to a father and a mother. Hmm. They have a God-breathing, Yah-breathed right to a father and a mother. This is such an important thing, and you can take it away from a child, just like you can take freedom away from a person. You can make a person a slave. You can steal everything they own. You can kill a person. There's lots of things that can happen to somebody. But under this premise right here, you have a fundamental right to a father and a mother, and equally important, you have the right to be able to honor your father and your mother. Now, for people who have been adopted, people who have been lost, and people who have been caught up in You know, uh, in, um, you know, step parentage and this kind of thing. And I'm not saying anything wrong about foster parents or step parents or anything else, because obviously they do a wonderful job in, in loving children that are not theirs necessarily. But, you know, children that are caught up in that, they want to know who their father is. They want to know who their mother is. You know, they want to know what their heritage is. They want to know. They want to know what's in their blood. You know, some people might want to know, is there a generational curse that I'm the fourth generation of? Is there something that I can celebrate in my past? What is the history? What is my history? Who am I? People want to know, and they want to know that by honoring their father and their mother. They have a right to do so. Okay? Amen. Okay, now we get into lo ratzach, you shall not kill. Some people say, well, that means you shall not murder. Well, you know, you want to take on a lo ratzach. Rod Sock will tell you point blank, not, don't kill. Also includes murder. But the general proposition is don't kill. Now you say, well, wh- well, wait, well wait a minute. We go hunting every year and we, and we kill an elk. Or I go fishing and I kill a salmon. Or, you know, whatever the situation may be. You know, I eat beef and somebody is killing that cow. Yeah, sure. The truth is, is that, you know, yeah, reluctantly, but did grant mankind the right to eat animals. I believe me, I've been through this for a year and a half, two years on this issue. When you have Yah segregate animals that are clean animals from unclean animals on the ark with Noah, he was right. making it very clear that he had acquiesced to animals being
1: eaten by men. Okay. Thank you. There was a debate. I have to say this. Arr. you know, sometimes I think that lies in their own. Oh, I just let me refrain. Let me just hold on. So there's there there are people who are advocating uh, veganism, which is great by all means. That's, that's a good path to, especially with the, the quality of meat that we have today. It's just not the same, of course, you know, we shouldn't really be eating as a student of nutrition. We really shouldn't be eating as much meat as we do. So, but to, to put it out there, to have such an impact and an influence on people and then to put it out there and say, oh, you know, you don't have the right to judge me because people were really judging this individual. Says, you don't have the right to judge me. I'm just stating my, my opinion. But but you're putting your personal stuff out there. And so it was so funny because someone someone had posted, I guess, I think he did. He posted a picture of various animals who are carnivorous, and then those who were uh, herbivores, and so forth, and the f- the teeth and the the construct of the mouth, and so oh look at the difference, you know, carnivores they have fangs and they could rip at the meat and blah blah blah, but the uh, omnivorous people they they don't, and their teeth and the the enzymes that can break like like um, you know it can break down starch and whatnot uh, like amylase, and so different different things. So there was like all these biological factors, and then I jumped in and I said yeah because we have Thumbs and we can use knives and forks. You know, we don't need teeth because, because we don't, we don't go running on our, all fours and our dorsal body, you know, our, the back of our, our dorsal and, and, you know, we don't go running and we don't have to rip because we, <laughs> we can use forks. <laughs> I'm thinking we don't need those teeth, but, um, it was just, it's just funny. You're, I, I love that, the simplicity of it. Yes, Dr. Pigeon. Although being a vegan is a wise decision, especially if your health is suffering, but it's not necessarily, has really nothing to do with your faith.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And of course, you know, vegan, what does have something to do with your faith, though, is being able to control your diet. You know, being, well, no, well, I, I mean,
1: to, being a vegan is yeah, even more holy.
0: But, I, but I, yeah, right. What I mean is, is that there may be times when you want to be a vegan. Maybe you want to be a vegan for a sure. while. Maybe you want to be a vegetarian for a while or a pescatarian for a while. Maybe you, sure. you go down this path or that path.
1: And, or EVOO, yeah.
0: Yeah, and those. Things, I mean
1: uh, lacto-ovo, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean I think those things are are good choices for people. Uh, you know,
1: very commendable.
0: Yeah, especially if you can pull away from GMOs, you know, and the more organic you can go. And uh, I think there is something really noble about the idea of learning to fast and learning to be... I was
1: just going to say that, Dr. P.
0: Sure, because you want to be able to know in your own heart, okay, if we come to a catastrophic situation, we're in the wilderness, can I live on one meal a day? Can I live on a small one meal a day? Can, you know, uh, how how long can I fast and what can I do, right? Sure. And some people that do a lot of extensive fasting know how little food they could actually live on. And I think... In in many respects, that's a blessing. That's a beautiful thing, and I'm not criticizing it at all. I'm not going to criticize veganism either. I mean, there was a time I was vegan no. for a while. There was a time I was a vegetarian for a while. There was a time I was a pescatarian for a while, and so and I think it's a good thing. I think there are, there is lots to be said for that. But scripture does allow for the eating of clean meat. I mean,
1: and that and that's. Let me just clarify. I appreciate that. I think if we're going to promote anything other than our lifestyle, which again I do promote a healthy lifestyle. Um, But if we are going to promote anything, let us promote what Yahusha promoted, right, which is fasting and weeping and wailing. But I don't see this quite often out there in the public arena. I don't see men using their platforms to call a fast or to call, you know, an assembly to intercede for the orphans and the widows or to intercede for those who are still caught up in the deception of the churches or whatever. I don't see men and women calling out for fasting and prayer uh, for the the state of our nation or for the, you know, whatever. Whatever, or even for this this uh, grand exodus that, that we would, uh, you know, succeed and that there would be many. I don't see any of that. Instead, I see, co- you know, conflict and arguments over these things, um, whether you should be a vegan or should should not be a vegan or should you eat meat or is, you know again, that's all I'm saying, it was just funny. It was just funny to me that, that, that I brought this up and I was like, yeah, we have thumbs. But thank you for clarifying. And I know that you're not speaking against any of these, I, I get that, I'm a, I am study nutrition, Dr. P, you know, homeopathic complementary medicine. And so I get that, but I am saying that if we're really gonna practice something, let us practice to, you know, like you said, in humility, let us practice how to fast. Let us put to practice the uh, submission of our flesh, so we learn to submit yeah. our flesh Amen. to the ruah.
0: Amen. And when you yeah. talk, and again, when you're talking about fasting, you know, we could, of course, spend a whole show on fasting. You know, there is such a thing as the daily fast too. You know, you don't necessarily have to fast for 24 hours, 48, 72 hours. Some people do, but you know, you can fast for the daily fast, where you fast a 12 hour period during the day. You know, sure. So you may not eat or 12 hours after you wake up, that's a form of fasting too, you know? And so, but the thing is, when we talk about-
1: It's it, called intermittent inter, intermittent fasting. Yeah, intermittent
0: fasting, yeah. And so with this kind of thing, I mean, you know, again, when we talk about killing, you know, the, the, the no killing actually refers to the concept that you cannot kill except under the terms by which a Yawa allows such killing to take place, okay? And so you know, scripture does require the killing of an animal to be humane and to be for the purposes of consumption. Now, when you get around uh, some of the ethical peoples, like the indigenous peoples, like for instance the Inupiat or the Inuit people that are, or, you know, used to be uh, derogatorily referred to as Eskimos, right? The Inuit or the Inupiat, you know, when they kill an animal, like when they kill a whale, you know, my dad watched. And he was at Point Barrow, and he watched them kill, bring a whale in one morning, eight o'clock in the morning, they brought in this giant whale humpback. And he said, okay, well, I'm going to come out, you know, I'm going to wait until my lunch break, come out at noon and see how it's going with the whale. So he waited until noon to come out there. When he got out there at noon, all that was left was the jawbone. Everything else of the whale was gone. Oh, wow. It was completely gone because they used 100% of the whale other than the jawbone for the various things that they did in the community. And you would see this very, very common among the indigenous communities. For instance, when they killed the buffalo. You know, when you look at the tribes that were in the central United States when they killed the buffalo, you know the buffalo hide would be used, the, the meat would be carefully rationed. You know, there were everything about the buffalo would be used in some form or another inside the tribe. When we get to to the the you know the pioneers coming out there, you know a lot of the guys were killing buffalo for sport. You know, just bag to shoot the buffalo and let it sit there. And they didn't even take the meat. You know, sure. they just kill the buffalo sure. for the sake of killing sure. the buffalo. Now, from my point of view, that's just absolutely reprehensible. I mean, if you're going to go hunting for an animal, you know, you have a duty to kill the animal, not wound the animal. You can't sit there and injure a bird and then let the bird fly off. You know, you either kill the animal or you don't kill the animal. Then if you kill the animal, you make use of the animal. You know, I I saw a a woman that did a show, an Alaskan woman did a show hunting caribou. And she shot this caribou, which the caribou was almost undersized. It was maybe a a year and a half old, two years old, maybe. And then they went and they took, uh, the caribou was dead. They went and they took some of the choice meat off the caribou and then left the rest of the carcass there. Well, you know, that's not appropriate. You know, know, you're supposed to take 100% of the caribou and then deal with it. You know, anyway, it's just an ethical thing. But when you look at this edict, you know, low low rod right side. Doctor, no Pitchin, killer. really
1: quick side side topic really quick. Hang on, sure. I have I have a side question. I don't know if you know the answer. You probably do. If 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 somebody killed an animal in the wild, right? I know that the law tells us that we're not to eat the ripped flesh or the uh the flesh of a of an animal that's been ripped by other animals. You know, but if we were to kill an animal like like you just mentioned and leave it there would uh wild animals other than vultures eat the flesh or do they have to hunt for it i mean is that something instinctual? Like, would they actually go and
0: absolutely they'll eat the flesh i mean they won't they will
1: like a lion a lion would go and eat the flesh if something somebody else killed it or something else killed it i'll
0: give you my alaskan experience you know if you kill the moose and there's a bear around the smell of the dead moose and you don't take the moose the bear will take that moose absolutely it'll take oh i
1: see Okay. the
0: wolves and the wolverines will take Uh, it. I I can tell you, I mean, I remember a scene uh, driving down to Kenai once, and we're coming into what's called the Saldatna Flats. And uh, we came into the flats, and a notorious place for moose being hit by cars. And anyway, some moose had been killed and left on the roadside. And so here we are coming up on this scene with this moose carcass laying there, right? And all these massive ravens were on top of the moose eating it. And on top of this dead tree about 12 feet upset, this huge bald eagle, supervise the whole thing like when you guys get done get out of the way then it's my turn right and so yeah they would pick the corpse they would pick the corpse pretty much clean so okay. yeah no the wild animals will eat where well, we might we won't but the wild animals will definitely eat whatever food they happen to run into and they, they don't have any you know there's no clean food among the wild kingdom right
1: <laughs> no there's no there's no law in nature <laughs> there's th- that specific
0: there's no there's no law of nature but when we look at this, okay, shall- so we
1: got the oral mitzvot.
0: Yeah, so we, yeah, so you shall not kill, Lorat Sak, right? It's from this premise that we get the, the fundamental right to life. We have a mm. right to life because Yah said, You shall not kill. That's why we have a right to life. And that applies to every single human being, whether you're in the womb or not, whether you're sick and elderly or not, whether you're deformed or you're, you're, uh, uh, you know, you're, uh, uh, malnatured or you're, you're injured or you're sick, whatever makes no difference. You're a human being. You have a right to life. It applies to all human flesh. You shall not kill another human being period. That's where the right to life ends. Now our next right stems from this. You shall not break wedlock. You have a right to a marriage. Noble wants to talk about this. It used to be in the common law in this country that you could bring a lawsuit against somebody for willful interference with a marriage. That is to say you're married and somebody comes along and steals your spouse. Well, then you wow. can sue them for wrongful interference with the marriage. Now this was overturned in virtually all 50 states. And when it was overturned in Washington, it was famously overturned because the guy was having problems with his wife. And so he took her into the church for some marital counseling and the counselor in the church ran off. of So he sued the church, right? He sued the church for intentional interference with the marriage.
1: And the sure, court, I love that.
0: This was 1986, by the way. The court comes down and says, OK, well, look, yeah, there used to be the tort of wrongful interference with a marriage. But we think it's just a bunch of nonsense that the people should be able to commit adultery if they want. And it's irrelevant to our scheme of marriage. Therefore, we're kicking the tort out that's existed since Henry VIII. It's now gone. And now there's no cause of action because we think it's just another way to get mad, to get even with your cheating spouse.
1: Right? Yeah. Do as you will. Just go ahead.
0: Do what thou wilt, Right. right. And yeah. now, you know, you can't walk into a courtroom and plead adultery. You know, in back in 1950, wow. in order to establish a divorce, you had to prove adultery, abandonment or uh, abuse. Right. The three A's, adultery, abandonment or abuse. Now mm-hmm. you can't raise a, adultery as an oh. issue in divorce. You only have to prove that, gee, we don't want to be married anymore. Well, can you prove that? Yeah, I just told you I don't want to be married anymore. OK, then I guess that's enough proof. Boom. <laughs> that's it. You know, you know, and if you ever raise the issue of adultery, you know, you come and you say, well, hey, uh, my spouse was committing adultery. If you open your mouth again, counselor, I'm gonna sanction you. We don't care about adultery. Keep your mouth shut. It's irrelevant to this case, blah, blah, blah. Wow. It's just the way it is. Okay, but but scripture provides for a fundamental right to a marriage, right? You shall not break wedlock. And we in et we say you shall not break wedlock. In in most texts, it says you shall not commit adultery. Well, I think breaking wedlock is a better. Uh, understanding of low naaf lo naaf low no naaf no breaking wedlock because when we talk about breaking wedlock you're talking about a condition of the heart it's a condition of the soul it's a condition of who you are right love your spouse with all your heart mind and soul and if your heart is running off somewhere else and but your flesh hasn't followed you're still breaking wedlock if you've decided that the marital bond is no more you can't I mean I've seen I've seen videos of people who have lived together for 50 years and they hate each other's guts with a purple passion and the kinds of things they say to each other, right? Well, that marriage has long since had, had its wedlock broken. And so what you want to do in your, in your marriage, and, and I spent a lot of time talking about this. I think we've got some pretty good videos out on it. When you talk about your marriage, you want to try to maintain the marital bond between husband and wife, right? Protect that bond Man. between husband and wife. It's not just, gee, did he go out and commit adultery? You know, it's not some threshold line that's way out there. You paint a red line, so don't cross it. You can do anything up and do that. No, you should keep the bond of wedlock. Don't break the bond of wedlock, okay? Man. You shall not steal. Loganab, no gain by stealth, right? You shall not steal. No gain by stealth. I
2: like it.
0: Now, it is from this premise that you obtain the right to property. What property? Well, you know, don't steal your neighbor's house. Don't steal your neighbor's wife. Don't steal your neighbor's stuff. Don't steal your neighbor's employees, right? Don't steal your neighbor's contracts. All this stuff that you're not supposed to lust after is the same stuff you're not supposed to steal. This goes to all of your neighbors who continually vote for property taxes, right? We don't have title to your property, but we've all agreed. Me and my friends got together and agreed that unless you pay us our little fee, we can take your property. Okay. Sure. Well, you show me your deed. No, I can't. You can't. Well, then how do you have a right to take your property? We voted on it. Yeah. Was all we
1: well, okay. it seems that people who migrated to specific countries—I won't mention any American names—but um, it seems as though all of these mitz votes were broken, right? I mean, it just absolutely, seems like so many
2: absolutely, were broken. absolutely, they are all broken. Jeez, and so,
0: because they're all broken, okay. So you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, right? Lotana, tana add Shakir, add Shakir, add testimony, Shakir, false, right? You
1: shall not add testimony. Oh gosh, mm-hmm. I love the way that you are just rephrasing it so good. Yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> well, there it is in the Hebrew, right? And so, you know, when you're talking about giving a testimony, that, a false testimony against your neighbor, right? Hmm. Against your neighbor. You're going to give a false testimony. When you do that, look, the harm that that creates can be stated enough. Okay, but you have a right to have not have people bear false witness against you. Okay, and then finally, you shall not lust at. Now, by the way, the right against false witness is expressed in the laws of libel and defamation. Right, libel mm-hmm. and defamation, both laws which have been completely gutted in this country under the doctrine of New York Times versus Sullivan, that allows anybody to say anything they want about anybody else. And upheld in the case of Hustler v. Falwell, where Hustler magazine oh God, just so Gerald right. Falwell from one end to the other, and the court said, No, that's okay, it's satire. So trust me when I tell you, there is no law of defamation, there is no law of libel unless somebody falsely reports on your credit. Other than that, you're not going to get anything for somebody calling you every name under the sun. Okay.
1: What, what about what about if if that act of defamating your character resulted in the loss of something? Like for example. I don't know. You lost your business as a result, or uh, you can prove there was an income loss, or whatever. Can you then? Well, again, I mean, do you I'm, have a case? Most here?
0: of the time, you know, when you see the defamation, there's all kinds of nuances in the discussion of defamation because it's not necessarily what you inferred from what they said, but what they intended when they said it. Um, and believe me, by the time you get into the courtroom, you're saying, I "Well, I inferred that she meant that I was a, you know, a dirty dirtbag." Sure. Sure, well, sure. what I meant to say was what I was intending to say was that you used to play first base and slid into the bases often,
2: uh-huh.
0: Right. So you see what I'm, you see what I'm talking about? So, uh, you get this, sure. I, so the law of defamation by the time you by the time, uh, believe me, I've done four or five defamation lawsuits. And in every case we've lost on summary judgment because the courts say, well, that's not what they meant. It was a joke. Can't you take a joke? You know, well,
1: you're what's well, a good thing that Yahuwah, he discerns the heart right? He knows. Absolutely. And and the thing is, the
0: people that defame, and we'll talk about this as soon as I get through this. You shall not lust, after your neighbor's house. We use the word lust in the Ed Sefer, not covet. You shall not lust after your neighbor's house. You shall not lust after your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's woman, nor your manservant or maidservant or ox or ass or anything that belongs or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Stop lusting after your neighbor's stuff, right? Stop coveting it. Okay, now, when we talk about these Ten Commandments here, these Ten Debarim, this covenant that I said before, Yah declared this to be his covenant between us. But we talk about these Ten Commandments, if you say, well, I'm not under these Ten Commandments, then guess what? You don't have these rights. I don't have to respect this, thou shalt not kill. Okay, then don't tell me you have a right to life. You don't. What you have is you have a privilege to stay alive as long as the current state is in power, says you have that privilege. You can't walk in and say, look, you can't take my life because Yah says I have a right to life. Nope, you can't say that. What you can say is please don't take my life because this guy said I was protected. Well, we've decided that you're not in the class that deserves protection anymore. You're the class that's going to be exterminated in the FEMA camp. Therefore, you don't have a right to life. You're the class that is has been determined to be idolaters under the Noahide laws. Therefore, you don't have a right. You see? And when you take away the Ten Commandments, then you take away these rights. The right to life, the right to a family, the right to a mother and a father, the right to a spouse, the right to your stuff, and the right to be freed from people lusting after your stuff, and Mm -hmm. the right to have your reputation protected. And, you know, trust me, our Constitution doesn't protect any of this at all. It doesn't Mm -hmm. protect any of this. Our laws don't protect any of this. But the Ten Commandments, the the Ten Devarim. The covenant between Yah and his people.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: To protect these things.
1: Dr. Pigeon, boom. So basically it comes down to your your right, not your ability, but your right to produce and multiply. So be fruitful, to be fruitful and to multiply. And this you're saying that under the constitution of Yahuwah, we have the right to be fruitful. We have the right to multiply without. The fear of being retaliated against in any form or fashion, regardless of whether it's to be uh, lied against, slandered, stolen, killed as a result. I have friends here in in our um, fellowship, and one of they're from there's a, fa- a family from Africa, a couple of brothers and his his parents and stuff. And so uh, I was telling them, you know, about some of the issues I have gone through, and then <laughs> the mom, in all of her wisdom, she said. Oh no, Jessica, you need to hide your squash. <laughs> I said, What? <laughs> she said, cover your squash. <laughs> I said, What does that mean? She says, In Africa, they do not announce their blessings because of the there is no I there's no concept of this be fruitful and multiply. They don't have that concept. If somebody is multiplying or being fruitful, they uh will lust for it. They will kill still kill or destroy it and so she says if they it was so funny dr pigeons brother so the the son he jumps and he goes yeah if somebody had a baby they just had a child and the child was beautiful you know like moses a just gorgeous baby the husband would run out into the town and said oh please don't come look at my baby It's the most ugliest baby in the world the horrendous baby ugly baby don't even look i'm so ashamed i don't want you to see my baby because they would even lust for the beauty of that child and wish it, you know, ill. And this is a real custom. Like, this is real. They, they truly do not.
0: It's real in Russia too. I mean, you don't smile when you're in public, you don't smile. So many things because if you smile, that means you have something at your apartment that needs to be stolen.
1: (laughs) Sure. Dr. Pigeon. she even went so far to tell me, she said, Jessica, when she, she said, when I came to this country, I was working and some, some of the women, uh, were being friendly with her. And one had said to, to her, so, and she has children who doctors, lawyers, one of them's a, a television, um, a movie star, like a famous star on, on um, one of these sitcom shows, like really famous. And so she was saying, you know, I came to this country and when I came to this country, the women were being friendly and they said to me, so, you know, how long, you know, blah, blah, blah. So how many children do you have? And she have, and she said in her mind, the first thing that came to her mind was why, are you a witch? Do you wanna sacrifice my children? You know, what are you gonna to do to my children? So this is a mindset, right? So this is real, especially in impoverished countries that you you intend to wish them harm. And it's always against your prosperity or your ability, not ability, but your liberty to be fruitful. That's so interesting because that's really what, it, when you look at it, Yahuwah said be fruitful and multiply, right? But sin prevents us, sin comes to, what does the enemy come to do? Still kill and destroy. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, when you're in the community, this is what we should be hoping for, is that we would we would all aspire to be fruitful and to multiply. But that's not always the case, is it? Because we have people who are envious, who jealous, who oh. for whatever reasons will, you know, condemn us and criticize and, and try to take us down so that we oh, do it's not become
0: multiply. it's become a terrible environment where well, the way we live yeah. right now, all people want to do is destroy one another. Yeah. I'm going to bash you in the face before you bash me in the face.
1: You would think we were in an impoverished country, huh?
0: Well, we're getting there. We're
1: getting <laughs> morally there. impoverished. Yeah, we absolutely. are morally impoverished. That's why.
0: All right. How are we doing? Okay. Did we, did we yeah. Finish?
1: I think right. we have this last one. The okay, oral okay. mitzvahs. Yeah. We're going to conclude here.
0: Yeah. And Moshe called all Yasharel and said unto them, Hear, O Yasharel, at the commandments, the whole king, and at the judgments, the Mishpatim, which I speak in your ears this day, that you may learn them, guard them, and do them. Yahweh <speaking> Elohenu, <in Hebrew> cut a covenant, karat brit, with us in Horeb. Yahweh, <speaking in Hebrew> cut not at this covenant with our fathers, but at with us, even us who are here alive this day. Yahweh <speaking in Hebrew> talked with you face to face in the mount out of the midst of the fire. Let's go to the next slide, if we can. And look at this, Jessica. These words, Yahweh spoke unto all your assembly in the mount out of the midst of the fire and of the cloud and of the thick darkness and with a great voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two sapphire stones and delivered them unto me. Now, this is called the Brit. In fact, it's an everlasting covenant given unto Yasharel. It's called the Brit Olam. The Brit Olam, the everlasting covenant. The Brit Olam. He wrote it on two etched, enumerated stones, sapphire stones. Sapphire, like sephir, means an enumerated writing scratched on a stone, sapphire. Okay? He wrote them on two sapphire stones and delivered them unto me. So you see that Yahweh spoke these 10 as a covenant, into the assembly, and he wrote them down on sapphire stones to become the written mitzvot and delivered them unto Moshe, and he added no more. You see that? He added no more. Now,
1: And it so- was finished.
0: And it was finished. Now, what's so important about this is when we get to Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one, or Hebrews 8, 8, Right in those days, Yahweh, the Ruach HaKodesh, will pour his Torah into your heart, mind, and soul. This right. is the Torah, this is the covenant. When Mashiach says, Zeh, he, when he says, I, I, I want to try to remember this here. He says, uh, uh, Yeah, Zeh habrit badami. this is the renewed covenant in my blood.
1: Hallelujah.
0: Right. This is the renewed covenant in my blood. What covenant did he renew? He renewed these 10 Devarim that he gave orally and that he wrote down himself on sapphire stones. Preach it. <laughs> this. Is, I just don't know how to express this. This is the covenant between Yahweh yeah. and his people. This is the covenant between Yahweh and his people. All of scripture... Is about this covenant and its renewal in the blood of Yahusha HaMashiach. Mm.
1: Because the the concept of blood is that it is alive, or that the the creature itself would be considered alive if the life was retained in the blood. What is that? High, Neshema, Neshema high. What is this? It is the very element listen to this, that was breathed into the nostrils, not the mouth, not the pay, but the nostrils of the man, and causing him to become animated, a living creature. And this was the life that was in the dom, the eth ha adam, the man, the set apart man, And when that life was quenched, when the spirit was quenched in order to superimpose the lust of the flesh, the appetite of the flesh, do as you will. Are you sure you'll die? Then you see that the spirit was then quenched, which is why. And we became without the light without the light or without the ruach to guide us, to lead us through the wilderness or the darkness or to lead us and guide us. Our consciousness is what Paul calls it. Is because our consciousness is seared. Uh, but then he says that, Through the work of Mashiach, our consciousness has actually been restored. And again, this is the Greek interpretation of this word. But he's talking about your awareness, your awareness of whom, your creator. So it's beautiful, Dr. Pigeon, that you conclude by saying that in, in the fullness of all things, that this life has been restored to us through the covenant and even the covenant being restored by the life of Yahusha because Yahusha did not sin, he did not quench the spirit. So therefore the spirit abided in him and he in the Ruach. And and as a result, we can now by faith receive the Ruach who then brings us into Echad with Yahuwah. Yahusha said, Abba, Yahuwah, I pray that they would be with me where I am and that they would abide in me as I abide in you. So this is that Echad. And in Amos, it says, how can two abide together, be Echad, unless they agree, right? As we come into agreement with his word, we become one with him. We are becoming aligned with him. His word, his ruach residing within us, which is that part of that new birth, right? Like to be reborn. It's because we receive by faith the ruach breath of life in us. And that's why Yahushua came as the Word. He came as the Word made flesh. But I want to ask you a question before we get into questions. Anybody has any questions, please post your questions using the all caps feature so I can distinguish between your question and a comment. Use the all caps feature. But now is the time to post your questions. Dr. Pigeon, what does this have to do with the nature, God's nature or nature's God? What does this have to do with the introduction of the the? Uh, how are you How are you bringing this together? Yeah,
0: because the laws of nature's God and the laws of nature and the laws of nature's God are expressed fundamentally in the concept, I am Yahweh Elohim. Okay, I am Yahweh Elohim, and so what you see is He is telling you, and He supports it by the testimony of two witnesses. By the way, that He is the absolute ultimate. Fundamental authority upon which everything exists Therefore all of cosmology starts with this fundamental law. See people look at the ten commandments and they say well The ten Devarim begin with thou shalt not create any graven image. No No, it doesn't the first commandment is Anki Eloheinu. I am Yahu Eloheinu That's the first commandment and so you look at that commandment, and you say, well, how can that possibly be a commandment? I don't see, a, 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 you know, how does that, you know, make any difference to me? How is that a law? That's the mm-hmm. fundamental law upon which all of existence exists. Mm-hmm. And so we look at this, we, so when we, when we say, okay, this is the, the fundamental truth of existence. If you disregard that and you say, no, no God, I'm an atheist or an anti-theist, no God. Mm. Then you are stuck with ontological conclusions, and the ontological mm. conclusions have now reached the absurd. When you know, when you read, when you go back and you see, Ben Stein's would be expelled. That's he so talked good. to one of the leading atheists, right, and he says, "Well, you know, evolution started here. Well, you can't. There's no possible way you can statistically show that evolution started in the Rakia, because there's no number big enough that will give you the the statistical possibility of existence spontaneously created." Oh, that's because it happened in another universe and then by transpermia came over here. So we add a couple of hundred more billion years over there. Well, it didn't work over there either. I mean, the, the, the ridiculousness of the ontological theory has really proven itself out. Statistically, it does not work. Logically, it does not work and it's inconsistent. But the concept of a creator, the heavens enumerate the glory of Yahweh. See, so in et sefer, you said the heavens declare, right? But right. the word there is sefer. Mm-hmm. It's Zephyr, right? The heavens in
2: Published.
0: the glory wow. of Yahweh, right?
2: Wow. And
0: so it just expands the whole of the concept of what is going on here. When we look at the testimony, when we look around and we see the testimony of what is, you can look out and see evidence of the Creator. But if you have refused that, if you refuse this concept of I am Yahweh Elohimu, you can see nothing. You're yeah. blind, you can see nothing. And that's why people who say that they can read scripture all day long. And it says, yeah, 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 yeah. It means nothing, mean nothing, 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 nothing. I don't understand it. Don't get it, don't get it. But but what down. As compared to someone who takes the view and accepts this first law, the first law of nature, which is yeah. The first law of nature is yeah. The first law of nature is the aleph, because the aleph preceded the word bereshith in enumerating the passage. The first rule is the aleph. The first aspect is there was something before the creation that allowed the creator to create. Mm. And that something before the creation is Yahweh, is mm. Yah in the heavens. This is the first law of creation upon which all other rules are formed.
1: And it really comes down to John 1-1. I mean, in the beginning was you was the word.
0: And the word was Elohim and the word was Elohim. That's
1: what it comes down to. The substance, the very fact that that if something was empty, then what is superior to that emptiness is that which is not, that which can fill the void. Mm -hmm. It's, it's,
0: gosh, that things were created by things unseen. Thus,
1: the righteous shall live by faith.
0: Yeah, there it is. And when you look at this premise, now look, we talked about
1: this before many and we're times. We're justified here. by faith as well. If Go I told
0: ahead. you, get out the pen and draw for me the the essence of life, you can't draw. Draw for me the essence of truth, you can't draw. Draw for me the essence of meaning, you can't, you can't draw. You can't draw. You can't draw meaning. You can't draw life. You can't draw truth. Very good. Because it has no material existence.
1: Right. But yet,
0: if if but we know there is life because without it we wouldn't be making this
1: discussion. Sure. Sure. Which, by the way, really defends what I was saying earlier about the fact that truly living is not to to be free from taxation. And I don't mean taxation both, yeah, in the natural and the spiritual, but to be taxed by the tax collectors or to be ascribed a um, taskmaster, uh, to be under the uh, heading of Pharaoh uh, in the sense that you have to create under pressure, right? So we no longer have to procreate or create under pressure when we are in Yahushua HaMashiach, who did it all, and then by faith, you know, it's funny, I was asking this question, I said, it's funny that we contend in the natural so often when we should be really working on walking in faith, right? So the righteous shall live by faith and therefore we shall be justified by faith. I said to my friend, look, I can guarantee you that in during the times of antiquity, during the times when Enoch walked on the earth faith was probably more common than doing something creating something in the natural as it is today so if i said to you dr pigeon hey can you move your screen (laughs) a little to the left you would take your hands and do that right you would move it physically by the arm of your flesh by the strength of your own hands but you wouldn't think to move it with your mind or move it by faith because that's not common but if I said to you move it by faith, you would say, ah, You're being funny, you know, how do I do that? But I can guarantee you that to when Yahuwah said shut up the heavens or stop stop the rotation of the earth or whatever, uh, to to well, because that would be contending flat earth or round earth, but to stop stop the the rotation. <laughs> yeah, or or you know, to stop the heavens, right? Uh, and or uh, to walk through water or to walk through walls. Doctor Pigeon, uh, that was like it's like okay, lift my arm up and the water is going to part. Sure, let's do this. Where have how far have we come, Doctor Pigeon? That that's not the norm. It should be the norm amongst people, but it's not. But I want it get back to the place where it's the norm. So again, speaking of the Spirit, what is this life that He gives to us, the liberty, so that we're no longer taxed and we no longer have to live in fear? Like you said fear of, of those, those command that, you know, being stolen, our, our property being stolen, our wives, our children, whatever. We don't have to be in fear. Uh, we can trust that he will preserve us unto his glory. Amen. Amen. Yeah. All right. We have some questions here, Dr. Pigeon. Um, you know, people are really liking the the, uh, this topic and, and I think it's absolutely great that you correlated the two. Um, we're taking questions now if you have, oh, I, I think I mentioned that already. All right. So Doc Holliday was asking if the Sapphire that you mentioned, the Sapphire stone, if that was the same one that's from you, who is thrown.
0: Yeah. Let me say this to Doc Holliday. Good to hear from you, Doc. Listen, I love all your communication. Thanks for being in touch. I really appreciate it. The Sapphire stone. Yeah. The, the throne room, the throne room floor is Sapphire. And you know, technically, mm. when you look at the word that has been construed as tablet. They say that it is um, luchach, but it's actually luach. And so the difference, you know, the Strong's word, which is you know a shoe put on the wrong foot, if you will, compared to the word that's actually there. The Strong's word, they says, well, that means tablet, but the actual Hebrew word there means uncut, fresh mm. stone, fresh stone, like mm. the uncut altar, right? But the problem is that from what stone was it cut? Well, it was clearly it was cut from the throne room floor because it tells us categorically that the throne room floor was sapphire. was sapphire stone. This is what Doc Holliday's the point Doc Holiday's making here. And so, but the, the, the real question, I have a blog up on this, by the way, at sephir.net. When you look at the sapphire, the question is sapphire. When you look at sapphire, see sephir is spelled Samac Pei Resh. Sapphire, which means to count, is spelled samik resh. So when you talk about enumerate the heavens, that word is sapphire, samik resh. Sapphire mm-hmm. is samikpeh yod resh, you see? So it comes from the same wow. word, sapphire, 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 comes from the same word. And sapphire means to count. Sapphire means a numbered writing, like a scroll, but you have the, the paragraphs and the chapters numbered. And then when you look at the when you look at the idea of the sapphire, you're talking about a numbered writing engraved, scratched, if you will, on stone. A numbered writing scratched on stone. That's why it's called a sapphire stone, uh, not necessarily the idea of a sapphire. Gee, that's a sapphire, nice, nice gem you have there on your ring. It's a beautiful sapphire. No sapphire in the term that it is a numbered writing scratched on stone.
2: Okay.
1: Okay, sounds good. And I think. Um... We, sh- we should probably look into that word hewn, hewn stone. So someone asked about the cutting of the covenant. They really appreciated how you had spoke about cutting this covenant, uh, even as uh, a covenant was once cut in, in the flesh of an animal. Uh, next one is by Susan Wallace, and she says, uh, so does this mean that we no longer have to wear the tassels, etc.?
0: Well, now I'll tell you the tassels are a very good issue. The seat seat are a very good issue. But I'll tell you this is good. Listen, all of this stuff is going to come to a head tomorrow morning when we have this interview. Okay, it's going to come to an head tomorrow because what has happened now is, and look, I'm just going to express it to you. Many of the people that are in the in the Hebrew Roots movement have been given over to a Noahide deception. And because they've been given over to a Noahide deception, but they're going to have to look to the blood of that lamb that was slaughtered up there for their salvation. It's just that simple. I mean, I personally believe that Yah has, you know, Yah gave blindness to the Jewish people. Paul says they're blinded in part, so that they could not see Mashiach. And now you have the Noahide. You have people who have followed followed into this Noahide stuff. And if you're in a roots community where the teachers have been embracing Noahideism, and you know where you know who you are and I know who you are. I know what communities have done it. I know the 200 plus communities in the United States that have signed on to the Noahide laws. I know the teachers that have been teaching the Noahide laws and the teachers that have been embracing animal sacrifice. Now, Jessica, you saw the sacrifice. You saw what it looked like.
2: Right.
0: Okay. Now I want you to think about that, that that has been embraced by a lot of the Hebrew roots teachers who have saying we're going back to the sacrifice. I
1: know, I know,
0: I know. Okay. You, you know this. Now look, going back to that sacrifice now is now, and those same teachers are telling their flocks, their congregations, their assemblies, that the Noahide laws are where they need to be. They need to come under rabbinic authority. When we see the videos tomorrow, we may not see the videos tomorrow, but we know that the nascent Sanhedrin and the Noahide Institute has put up in its facility the chakras, yeah, and you know, and this 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 business of the Hindu uh, Kundalini spirit
2: mm-hmm. integrating
0: itself into the Tree of Life, which you know, which uh, what's his name of the the one the video you sent over Leland, I think his name was very clearly said that this is a tainting. This is a, an Eastern influence from Hinduism that has tainted the tree of life. And it is coming and is teaching this ridiculous expression that has no Genesis in scripture whatsoever. In fact, it doesn't even appear in the Talmud. Yeah. But yet they are teaching this as a form of how you become Noahide.
2: Now the it's Noahide laws
0: don't exist in scripture either. The Noahide laws don't exist in scripture. They don't have they're not found anywhere in scripture, including in the overgenerous et Zephyr that has 87 books. You still don't have the Noahide laws as they are, have been identified by Maimonides. And this claim to to Jewish superiority, which is we get the Torah, you get the Noahide. Hmm. And, and then these people who are going to be defined by the death of this land. Now hmm. look, Jeremiah 31 31 says, I will do a new thing. Behold, I will do a new thing. I will pour my Torah into your heart, mind, and soul. I will, by the Ruach HaKodesh, okay? This is a new thing. The Tzitzit were given so that we could remind ourselves of the Torah. Now, look, people, you know, criticize me all the time. They say, well, look, he doesn't wear Tzitzit. And I don't wear Tzitzit. And the reason I don't is because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I can tell you, but people say, well, you don't wear tzitzit. And the people wearing tzitzit have attached the tzitzit not to the four corners of their garment, to their garment, but to their belt loops, which is not the four corners. And it's tied in a gematria of yod heh bab So they have this gematric expression, a Talmudic gematric expression tied to their belt loops, right, that is going to remind them of the Torah, but it does not remind them of the covenant It instead reminds them of the 613 mitzvot identified by Maimonides, who completely ignored the Torah given in Genesis.
1: Hallelujah. Instead of having that being written, transcribed upon their heart, right? Ketob, upon their heart, inscribed upon their heart and searing their consciousness, segregating from the desire to sin, transforming their minds by the renewing thereof and having the water of the word wash them so that they become clean, they would rather have an outward appearance of godliness, such that Yahusha himself said, lo, lo, behold, the outside of the cup is clean, but the inside is filthy. And this seems to be the case. I don't care how long your tzitzits are, if your heart is corrupt. Maybe.
0: OK, Yeah, make them longer, and bigger, add more blue string to them or red string or whatever. Sure. I mean, it's a
1: beautiful gesture. It's a is beautiful it- gesture, but that's pretty yeah. much what it is. And although it's a commandment and some will argue the case, I think it's a beautiful gesture. It's more of an ethnic cultural thing that maybe people want to identify with. But oh, there's uh, but if
0: for a Torah command that says where the tizi of it's course right but,
1: no I'm talking about on their belt loops and all this other stuff I mean yeah. it's a it's a gesture right they're they're making a gesture I think they're more they're using it to to be more culturally identifiable right um, but,
0: because technically it's supposed to be sewn on the hem of your garment sure. Okay. So every sure. now and then, oh,
1: wait, I was just going to say God, though. So, but what about the do not cut the corners of your of your beard and all the other stuff? I mean, yeah. those things that they can do. What about that yeah, stuff? Yeah,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, look, my daughter gave me a bunch of.
1: Reasons. They cut. They trim their beards uh, all the time. They're not supposed to. They're supposed to yank it out, aren't they?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I know. I mean, look here. You see this? See that? Yeah. That's called yeah. shaving. That's My daughter (laughs) gives me such grief. You know, I said, yeah, no tattoos, no tattoos. She said in this very same chapter that you say no tattoos, it says, do not cut the corners of your beard. You're cutting the corners of your beard (laughs) and you're cutting the corners of your hair. I'm like,
1: yeah, hey, hey," you know, (laughs) she's your daughter.
0: (laughs) But you've got to keep in mind that the Torah is instruction. Okay, the Torah is instruction. So what's the main thing we can garner from tzitzit? Tzitzit are to remind you to keep the Torah. But you have to answer the question. What is the Torah?
2: Right, sure. And
0: I told you, I just showed you Deuteronomy 5.22 that said he wrote, he commanded them verbally and wrote them with his finger on sapphire stones and added nothing more. Do those before you start talking about whether or not you can pass slaves down from generation to generation.
1: Wow. Let's be real. Honestly, let's be real. I don't, I don't want, I don't want entertainers anymore. I'm so done with these entertainers who want to rise, uh, and, and, and and really they love the spotlight, Dr. Pigeon, And they're really just entertaining the body rather than really hard questions. And that's why I really appreciate what you do here on crossing over and you really don't have to, but you choose to. And I I appreciate it. Dr. Pigeon. Because you're really making us look at things from a different perspective, but truly looking at them with a hard lens. You know, we're looking intently at this and saying, really, what does it really say? These are all questions that I've had my entire walk, my journey, but I had them quietly because I was too afraid to speak them out loudly. <laughs> in fear that I would be retaliated against because they were too critical or, you know, Hey, Hey, what are you trying to say? You know? Uh, but really, it, this, we have this to kick is, you out of our church. <laughs> sure. Right. You, insubordination, you know? So that's a good question. Do we have to wear, so do we, do we, do we, do we have to wear the tassels? I mean, it's a commandment.
0: And the answer is if you're going to wear them, look, I've been known to wear a seat seat from time to time. You know how I cut the hem off my blue jeans. Boom! I have seat seat.
1: Hey, kind of (laughs) smart. Yeah,
0: and that's a natural seat seat because guess what? It's on the hem of my garment, right? Mm. But but the truth is is that you know when you talk about this kind of thing, the answer is, I don't believe you do. I mean, if you want to wear seat seat, look the true wearers of seat seat are who? Look at the look at the Native American tribes, right? When they come out in their regalia, they have tassels hanging from the four corners of their garments. Right. Now, that's what a real castle is supposed to look like. So if you want to do that, okay, do it. That's fine. Do it. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. But what I'm telling you, the command there is to remember the Torah. The reason you're given the tzitzit is to remember the Torah. And if you're going to remember the Torah, remember the Torah. But there is something new that has been given, which is that the Ruach HaKodesh has poured it in your heart. If you're baptized with the Ruach HaKodesh, then I don't believe you do have to wear tzitzit, the Ruach has already overtaken you. And so, it, you know, and you need to stay in touch with that which the Ruach has given you.
1: Which was my point earlier, right? That, 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 that the prophecy would come to pass, that the Torah, you don't need the, those to remind you of the Torah, the commandments, because if that was the case, then you would not shave your beard. You would be reminded of them. But the fact that we... Love to look. We love to have the appearance of, of godliness, but uh, we forsake the widows and the orphans. Let us get let, we got to get it right. Um, the simplicity of his word, right? It really is the beauty of his word. It's not burdensome. Uh, uh, April is asking, do you think that we will ever have common law in this country again? What is one define it? First? Yeah,
0: that's, yeah, no, that's a great question. And, and let's just talk about this. When you talk about common law, uh, technically, the common law is in force in this country you have in in the seventh, uh, the seventh uh, article, uh, amendment, excuse me, the seventh amendment, commands that in all civil suits, the common law shall control. Here in the state of Washington, the oldest statute that we have on the books, which actually preceded the the first constitution in the state, it's part of the Oregon territory, says that the common law shall apply in all cases. Now, the common law, I've actually published, and you can buy on Amazon, bouvier's law dictionary part one and part two it's a two-volume set and in that dictionary all the common law precepts are set forth now what's alarming about those common law precepts is that they're all in latin okay they're all latin, like race ipsa right these are latin common law concepts that were derived from you know from the practice of really the ecclesiastical courts that is to say what the latin the roman church did in adjudicating something outside the parameters of what the king did. And so this is where a lot of the common law edicts come from. Now, what a lot of people want to know in the common law is, will we ever go back to corpus delecti? Now, corpus delecti is a concept that every crime has to have a victim. That is to say you have a corpus delecti, you have a victim, you have mens rea, which is the evil state of mind, and you have actus reus, which is the proximate cause of the crime. And you would have to prove an evil state of mind that you were the proximate cause of the crime and that there was a victim, corpus delicti That is long since gone. Now, in fact, what we're into now is we're into a country that is being run by software. Okay, So we don't even have the, the benefit of a statute. I mean, I had a I had a client on the stand who was being charged with a, what's called mala prohibita. That is to say he was driving without a driver's license and driving without license plates on his car on an interstate highway. Now, technically, under the constitution, he has a constitutional right to travel, particularly on an interstate highway which is exclusively under federal control under the interstate commerce clause. And so we argued this point in court. Well, boom, I, I hate to break the news to you, but he has a constitutional right to travel without a license. Hmm. And we we brought up people from the Department of Licensing, we brought up people from the state, and we brought up all these expert witnesses, and we said, Okay, well, look, what happened? This guy's never had a driver's license. Well, he never had a driver's license, so we mark him down as having a suspended license. Well, how could he have his license suspended if he never had a driver's license?
1: Right. Because our
0: <laughs> software commands that if he doesn't have a license, we have to mark him down as having a suspended license. Now you see, wow. here the fact is he had no license, had never had a license to have any license suspended. They couldn't suspend a license because he never had one. But the software did not allow for that condition to exist. So wow. they defaulted to the imputed fact that did not exist in reality to say, oh, yeah, his license was suspended and we booked him while driving with the suspended license. Right. Because that's what the software license. So what you're trying to tell me is the statute was irrelevant in terms of your charging decision. Your charging decision is predicated upon the software engineer who developed a particular protocol right. for enforcing your driver's license protocol. Is that what you're trying to say? And they admitted this on the stand. They admitted it on the stand. Okay. Wow. So So it
1: was basically A, therefore, no, wait, scratch that, not B. Yeah,
0: that's right. Just we'll impute the fact that we need to impute in order to convict you. Now, you'll Hmm. you'll often see this in family court too. Well, we're going to impute income to this guy. Well, this guy can't work anymore. Look, Since the since he used to be knocking down one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, retail, but guess what? He had a major stroke, lost his ability to speak. He no longer is employed and can't make more than, you know, two fifty a week uh, working over pushing carts at Walmart. Well, he worked there before. So we're going to impute income at one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. And yeah. then we're going to assign his child support and his spousal maintenance Supporting. predicated upon this imputed income, which does not exist as a matter of fact. It does not exist. But we created the fact. We imputed it to him. There you go.
1: Sounds like yeah. our economy. Sounds like our sounds like our money.
0: <laughs> it yeah. doesn't exist,
1: but we'll create it once the need. To, uh, yeah.
0: we'll, impute, we'll, well, if you're going to impute something to me, why don't you impute the $7.5 bucks that you guys sure. impute to bail out the banks? How about sure. you impute know, that to us, right?
1: Sure sure that's funny the next question that i have comes from someone who finds himself in that very similar situation uh in the fact in the sense that when he i don't want to put his personal information out there but when when this sort of happened to him with the whole child support thing and then when he found that he couldn't continue paying this large amount uh they said oh well you know you were able once before so somehow you have to figure out how to continue to make that payment
0: which means what smuggling meth over the border i mean i don't know
1: right oh yeah. Or trust your Elohim. Let's see. Uh, and you know what? Yahuwah came through. So yeah, good. So, so, so here's, here's his question. Um, and it's, it's in several parts. So I'll just ask it all together. I'm sure that you can retain the question and then we have a few more minutes. Maybe we'll ask one or two and I'll try to bring them in. So, so um, let me see if I can put this question along with that question. Cause it's a really good one. Uh, looks like Kazarine C- Cortez, Miss Cortez. It looks like we answered that one already with the other ones with regarding the 613. If you didn't hear it, go back. Um, I'm gonna ask two more. I'm gonna ask this one from Andre Lewis and then I'll ask another one from Kathy, which is a really good one. Um, And this one is two parts. Like I said, it says question for Dr. P. First and foremost, what is, what constitutes a constitution? What is a constitution in the eyes of the ancient Near East one? What is the biblical constitution in comparison? And how do these translate both in modern day with the rise of technology, for instance, gratification and a decrease of reliance on Elohim's promises? So basically, how do you compare the two? What is a constitution in the eyes of the ancient people, the ancient Near East, you know, how did they perceive?
0: Sure, though, when you're talking about a constitution, you're talking about an organic document, an organic understanding, The document reflects the understanding, but it's an organic understanding of the creation of the nation. Now, remember that when you talk about nation in Hebrew, you're talking about goyim. This becomes a very important concept when we're talking about melo goyim, in particular, the blessing that is on the house of Ephraim. This is going to become a much larger issue next year, Jessica, because when we talk about the melo goyim, it's very important for the leadership in Ephraim to understand that they have to govern a commonwealth of nations and not a kingdom okay let mm-hmm. me say that again it's okay. important for the leadership in ephraim to understand they have to govern a commonwealth of nations and not a kingdom very important okay all right second concept is so the 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 constituting authority in in uh in scripture is going to be by tribe right it's going to be by tribe and so you would have a you would have a hierarchy established but first of all, the tribe would call itself after whatever it might be, and some tribes were matriarchal, right? They would call themselves Dine after Dinah, right? And there would be other tribes that would name themselves after the matriarch, but most often the tribes would call themselves after a patriarch. So, for instance, the Hebrew tribe would name itself after Hebrew, we often call them as Eber, but it would be Hebrew, and they would say, We're, we're of the tribe of Hebrew, that's our patriarch. Another tribe that went and named after themselves after the patriarch was the Cumri or the Welsh. They named themselves after Omri Omri who was the one of the kings in in the in the house of Yaharel or the king, the Northern Kingdom and because he was the lawgiver they they considered him the patriarch they called themselves Qumri and they were known throughout history as Qumri. and in fact my friends who were code searcher found the infinite amount of places where these guys are identified okay? So you also have the, and so the tribe then would, would, would come down through these laws of patriarchy for the most part, and it would be this tribal member, that tribal member, this brother, that sister, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, what we have discovered is that the genealogy of Hamashiach set forth in Matthew 1 and Luke 3, and the, and the, uh, uh, the relationship to the apostles is that they were all basically part of one big tribe, of which Joseph of Arimathea was a critical part of. Okay, I mean, it's incredible what the history is revealing. But you would see that what would constitute the tribe would be the tribal authority and the blessing that came primarily from Genesis 49. So Jacob, Yasharel, blesses each one of the children. And that blessing created this constituting authority over the tribe. Then the tribe would claim its patriarch. And then the tribe would evolve through that patriarchy. Now, when we get into the modern world, we have this idea of a secular authority that we can create whatever thing that we want by the consent of the governed, right? That the consent of the governed can then come in and say, we're going to create our, we're going to constitute our particular nation, which is going to be, in this particular case, this nation state, United okay. States, was actually started as a set of English colonies. So the, the, the understanding was, that this was an Anglo-Saxon tribe that had created a united uh, a grouping of 12 commonwealths that would become the United States of America, right? And But it was understood as an Anglo, an Anglo-Saxon tribe or that you know, and, and Anglo-Saxons are not necessarily Ephraim, okay? But that's how it was understood. And then into that came German immigrants, came Irish immigrants, came Welsh immigrants, came British immigrants, And then, of course, in came the Italian immigrants, then the Spanish immigrants, et cetera, et cetera. And as the country pushed out over the frontiers, we merged with the indigenous peoples to some degree, the ones we didn't kill. And, of course, there was a slave trade that brought in so much of the House of Judah out of Africa into the United States. And so because of that, we had this merging of of people that eventually we got to a point where we could no longer say, This was the tribe of Anglo-Saxons that created America, even though it was never expressly stated. Instead, we said we were a nation created by the consent of the governed, we the people. And so Lincoln said we are a a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Well, That's a very interesting tyranny, by the way, of the people, by the people, and for the people. That's a a tyranny. It's a tyranny. It's a form. It's this mass democracy, mob rule, if you will.
1: Well, I think I think was- that actually comes from the Roman Twelve Tables, which is something I mentioned to you. I think a couple of days ago, um, if you know about them, the Twelve Tables was actually the Ten Tables that was uh, these laws, these set of laws that was inscribed upon bronze tablets which is really similar to the tablets of stone. Uh, But if they were to do some research, they would find that in 451, 450 BCE, uh, Rome had instituted these laws of ethics and morals and exactly what you're saying for the people, by the people. Um, Yeah, so it's interesting. and um,
0: It's interesting that it's a government of the people and not of Yahweh. Of
1: course. Yeah. Now,
0: there are other nations in Europe... blind
1: leading the blind.
0: The blind leading the blind. There are nations in Europe that say, we were created by the hand of Yahweh. And that's what the divine right of kings was. I mean, this is what they still claim in Russia, the divine right of kings. The Tsar was of the hand of Yah, and that the, his governing uh, ability was at the hand of Yah. But people say, no, we want, a, we want a nation state that is of the people, by the people, for the people, and not created by Yah. And this is what our constitution is. It's a an agreement between people that says, this is how we're going to govern ourselves and it was created to have enough teeth in it to ensure that the nation state stayed together for one purpose and one purpose only, to pay back King George, the money we borrowed, in order to fight the Revolutionary War. That's why the Constitution was really created, in order to make sure that the states paid the debt instead of Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Franklin, the guys who
1: borrowed the money. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Let me read this really quick regarding the 12 tables. It says here, according to tradition in 451 BCE, a committee, uh, and I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce this right, but you can correct me. Uh, the decem, it's D-E-C-E-M-V-I-R-E or U-I-R-E. It's written in a really weird
0: yeah, decim, uh, font. Yeah,
1: Okay, dec, vide. <laughs> The decemvide were following public pressure, uh, given the task of composing a law code which would better represent the interests of the ordinary people, the plebeians, and reduce the undue influence on Roman law of the patricians, or the aristocrats, and the pontifices, or pontifices, uh, the priests. Uh, And so this, this is the, blow the pontificators, <laughs> the pontificators, <laughs> the pontificators, sure. and so so it's interesting. I was looking into this and how it was established first in Athens and then in Salon. But I was looking into this in regards to um, the c- comparing uh, comparing laws between Babylonia and between the Hebrew people. And so what I found was interesting is that a lot of these concepts, a lot of these twelve laws, these twelve. Uh, edicts uh, actually made their way into our institu- uh, constitution and made their way into our governing law systems. So um, we have one last question, Dr. Pigeon, And this is again from Kathy. And I think this is a perfect segue into uh, tomorrow's show. So let me just remind those of you who have stayed with us for three hours. Thank you so much. You guys are amazing. Hungry. People are hungry. Reminds me of that one uh, occasion where they were ministering and uh, the house was packed. Right. And there was a man who was sitting at the windowsill and he was, they were going on until like the early morning. And this guy was just boom. And he fell asleep and he literally fell from the window died. They ran outside, picked him up, brought him inside, revived him and said, let's keep going. <laughs> I said, I hope we could get to that point. You know, if any of you die out there, we're going to pray that you will be that you'll be, die while watching us. Please don't die while watching us. But yes, three hours. We're three hours in Dr. Pigeon." Tomorrow, listen, guys, tomorrow we have an exclusive interview, an exclusive interview. It's very serious stuff. I'm not sure if you're aware, but you can find information online if you just Google uh, or do a, 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 a search on the 70 elders conference that was I think it took place last weekend. Then um, it was done in Israel or conducted in Israel. And there was a gentleman who was employed. Uh, I'm not sure for hire, but if it was for pay, but he was employed to sacrifice an animal on the Mount of Olives on behalf of Hashem. And he did so in the name of Yahuwah. And there are other things that are, but we want to hear from him. So this gentleman is going to join us tomorrow. He's actually going to join Dr. Pigeon tomorrow. And I will refrain. I'm just going to sort of moderate uh, and make sure that everything goes You know, smoothly, but he is going to join us tomorrow to give his side of the story, to give his perspective on what happened and what he thinks is happening. Because believe it or not, he has a lot to say. But so does Doctor Pigeon in regards to the prophetic implications that this event has and where exactly it's like, sort of like a temperature to help gauge, uh, you know, where the body, if the body is truly sick or not. And so we're gonna we're gonna have that tomorrow, 9 a.m. Pacific, 9 a.m. Pacific, because he's in Israel, he's 10 hours ahead. So we have to consider his timing, but 9 a.m. So if we can get you to not only pray for for tomorrow, uh, pray for Doctor Pigeon, a hedge of protection around his family as well as me and my my family, um, and again, just consider uh, the sensitivity of the of the subject. We would also appreciate any questions that you might have. I can uh, present those questions to both Doctor Pigeon and our guest. So um, not sure where. Our question went, but I, I think remember I remember it. it. I remember it too. Oh, you do? Okay, good. She was basically asking uh, when do you think the last, aside from Yahusha, which I'm, that word sacrifice, we have to uh, restore it, right? Let's repair our minds. Um, that word sacrifice is used erroneously. It's actually, um, of because if we think about what sacrifice means, even in the Greek, it would mean a victim, right? It's something to do with the victim. But he was not a sacrifice, he was an offering. Um, so there's two different things, right? Dr. Pigeon, an offering and a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And so she's asking in regards to a sacrifice, where the in the the entity would be a victim. So when was the last sacrifice and Let's clarify because when was the last sacrifice that you in scripturally that Yahuwah accepted?
0: Well, okay, that's a good question. And now I can tell you, uh, I don't want to get too far into the details on it, but it was around 33 AD that uh, the Azazel goat, they used to tie a red string around the Azazel's goat's neck. And then uh, the, before Yom Kippur, the goat's string would turn white. And so they knew that the Azazel goat had accepted all of the sins of Israel. And then, of course, they would cast it out in the wilderness where it would be later be killed. And so, but in 33 AD, the the uh, string failed to turn. If they put, if they, and so they had concluded in 33 AD that, in fact, I think it was 33, but I mean, it might have been 31 AD, it might have been 31 AD. They had concluded that, in fact, the ruach hakodesh had left the temple there was no more ruach inside the temple now of course you know that the lintel fell and the veil split in half at the death of mashiach but daniel 9 describes daniel 9 27 describes that the messiah would die in the middle of the week now if you take those seven years the beginning of his ministry until the until the end of the ssl goat that would be the seven years so he died in the three and a half year period assuming that you believe in a a three-and-a-half-year ministry, that he died in the three-and-a-half-year period there in 28 AD. And then when you get to Yom Kippur, that's exactly three-and-a-half years later, in the year 31 AD, that the week was completed. And when the week was completed, the Azizel goat no longer turned white. And so the rabbis concluded that the Ruach HaKodesh had left the building. And so everything after that was just kind of basic. Uh, It was rote functioning. There was nothing spiritual about it. They still did it but it was rote functioning, it was just animal slaughter. And when you get to the point of the temple's destruction in 70 AD, that was the end of it. And in the Jewish world, they know, in the Torah, the Torah is very specific, that you shall not, if you slaughter an animal somewhere else, like up in Shiloh, which is what uh, Jeroboam did, if you slaughter animals up there, you slaughter bulls over here, you know, at Shechem, or you take them down to Beresha, whatever, that's just a barbecue. That's not a, 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 a sacrifice or an offering. The sacrifice or offering had to be done at the temple on Yah's terms in accordance with his specific dictates. After the temple was torn down and destroyed, there was no more sacrifice, at least not legal sacrifice. Then the stones were removed, and by the time you get to the Bar Kokhba Evol, Revolt, which is about 110 AD, the, the, what remained of the people of, Yah, of Eudea, Judea were kicked out. Like, get out. We're naming this country Palestine or Palestina. This city is going to be called Al-Quds, and you guys hit the road, and you're banned from ever coming back here. And that ban was effective until the 19th century. So, you know, you know, by the time you get to 70 AD, that's the end of the animal sacrifice. That's, it. that's ended. That's all of it. It's done. Now, all of a sudden, we get to a point here five years ago, the nascent Sanhedrin begin to sacrifice animals for Pesach. And they started doing it on an altar. Now, if you go back and you look, you'll see that when the second temple was created, they began sacrificing as soon as they had an altar of uncut stone. These Sanhedrin aren't using an altar of uncut stone. They're using, like, you know, they're using this fake concrete and, and uh, they're using old pallets, uh, you know, to burn the offerings. I mean, it's crazy stuff. It's so far outside of scriptural edict, it's not even Talmudic. It's just, you know, it's like crazy stuff. But they're doing it nonetheless, and they've been doing it for five years. And as a result, we've had the reinstitution of sacrifice. Now, it's very interesting because it says in one of the prophecies that the oblation will be taken away. The daily oblation will be taken away. Well, this is about to happen because we've had this sacrifice. And this sacrifice took place here on the 26th of September was huge. It was a monumental, extremely important sacrifice because it was a blood covenant. This is why it had to be a Goyim that did the sacrifice of the animal, because it is a blood covenant between the Noahide Goyim and the rulers, the Talmudic rabbis. Dr. Pigeon,
1: save it for tomorrow. Oh my gosh, Dr. P. Oh God.
0: That's that's what's going on.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: And so all of those of you who have accepted being Noahide, you are now under the blood of that lamb, you are ah. in covenant with those rabbis. You have signed the pact. Those 200 congregations that signed the pact, that that said, we're going to come under the Noahide laws because they were told that you would cling to the tzitzit of a Jew, which is an, which is an ancient prophecy. And right. by the way, it was not, the, the word Jew was not used there. If The word was Yahudi, and Yahudi has to do with your faith, mm-hmm. not your citizenship in a kingdom that was destroyed just a few years after the death of Solomon. Wow. You're talking about a Yahudi is a Yahudi in faith. That's that it's the circumcision of the heart. And so that is who you're to the seat, you're supposed to cling to, and whose tzitzit seed are there? There's only one rabbi.
1: Hallelujah. But,
0: but because you Woo! have I am Noahide, and you you signed a pact, you were in you're in a congregation that has signed a pact that says we come under. Noahide authority, under rabbinical authority, it is now cut in blood. It's wow. now cut in blood. Now, let me tell you what that means. In order to leave that pact, blood must be shed. Oh my gosh.
1: Wow, powerful, wow, Dr. Bidden.
0: And I can tell you, Jessica, Yah has shown me That he has intentionally blinded and deafened those who were in the process of denying Mashiach to put them on this Noahide delusion. He has intentionally blinded them and intentionally deafened them. And they will not hear this video because they don't listen to me at all because they have cast me to the curb and have murdered me in their hearts. I am dead to them. I am still laying under the stones That heap of stones that they threw at me for six months, I'm still laying under that heap of stones. So they're not going to hear from me. They won't hear these words of warning. They'll hear nothing. They have signed into a pact, into a blood pact from which only their blood can redeem them.
1: You know, it's quite all right. We praise Yahuwah because He is able, He is able to keep you and He is able to raise you from that heap of ash. Hallelujah. So, what the enemy intended for evil, Yahuwah will turn around for good because He is faithful, declaring His word that it shall not return void. Dr. Pigeon has also declared that He is faithful even when man is not. So, we praise Him because He is our refuge and our strength. And you know what? our hope is in him. Yeah. Um, but you know what, Dr. Pigeon, let's, let's save this for tomorrow. Cause I can already feel my blood boil. And, and you know, uh, just, I just want to let some people know, I just want to clarify. I don't know why there's so much confusion regarding the time I did send out a newsletter. So those of you who are, who are on our mailing list, our email list, you should have received a newsletter that will, will just take you right to the, uh, the channel. It's already set up here on crossing over. So you can just hit the reminder button go right now to my channel that you're on. Once this is over, hit the reminder button and it will remind you tomorrow, maybe 15 minutes before it broadcasts, 9 a.m. Pacific time, 12 p.m. Eastern time, 11 central. So 9 a.m. Pacific time, 11 central, 12 Eastern time. And in Israel, it'll be 7 PM. And, uh, we're not, we're not doing this so that we can, uh, either justify or condemn the gentleman. We're simply wanting to hear why he believes he was led to do what he did. And then we're going to speak about the matter. Um, Dr. Pigeon will then Address the issues after the fact, um, but there are some videos out there. I think you can go to Leland's channel, who was actually there with him, along with he. I think he participated in the conference. Not that he was in agreement with it. He was there to investigate and to report upon on the on the events that took place. But I think it's wise for us to also consider who these people were. I was told by the gentleman Malqui that uh, some of the people that were there uh, who authorized this killing, uh, was, uh, they were Levites. They were, so I don't know if they were self-proclaimed or, or, you know, blood. I don't know. They got their DNA. I don't know, but they were Levites. They claimed to be Levites. I don't know why they didn't do the sacrifice then, but lots of questions. So, uh, tomorrow 9am, 9 9am. 9 I know it's super early. That's why we got to sign off soon because, you know, we need our, our energy and our rest, but 9am. You know, Levites were there. We had um, you know, a lot of, I think they were from, I think the group, they they were, they were called themselves part of the Sanhedrin. They spoke on behalf of other elders within the country. I'm not quite sure who, I, I will do my investigations tonight and make sure that I report appropriately. Dr. Pidgeon, I'll make sure to get you that information. But I, I'm pretty sure that they spoke on behalf of the Sanhedrin, which is basically a council of men who are in trying to institute and uh, propagate the um, the Noahide laws, and oh, they also har- uh-huh?
0: the nascent Sanhedrin are in the process of declaring themselves to be the international supreme court over issues moral, and they will okay. enforce the Noahide laws, including inflicting the death penalty by decapitation for idolatry and for blasphemy idolatry is defined under the noahide system as the worship of yahusha hamashiach
1: wow yeah and the blasphemy is the proclaiming of his name right here's what's interesting here's a here's an interesting fact this is very interesting and i don't, I don't want to say too much because i'm concerned that leland might i'm not Leland, but our our guest might be watching or listening or tuning in and i don't want him to be discouraged because again we're not setting a trap for him we really do want to hear where he's 100% coming from.
0: Absolutely. Right. We
1: do want to hear where he's coming from. And then Dr. Pigeon wants to speak to the matter. Whether we agree with it or not is irrelevant. Um, you guys are the ones that need to make your own mind up. Uh, but w- it's very interesting because he had said uh in another interview that he that he knew that it was wrong that they were sacrificing unto Hashem. HaShem. And when I was looking up the scriptures in Ezra regarding the abomination of desolation, I came across this term and I asked Dr. Pigeon his opinion. He says, no, 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 don't do it. Don't do it. But I just wanted to bring this up. It was a, a Baal Shamaim, which is the Baal eth or not HaShamaim, the heavens, right? Made me think of Baal Shem or this God HaShem right? Made me think of that. And I started thinking, is this, this is obviously another God. It's not our Elohim that they were sacrificing to. This gentleman, Malki, said that he knew and so that he was actually praying and that he was, he says that in the past, and I'll let him tell you his from his own mouth, that in the past he had been um, advised by the spirit of Elohim to, to practice sacrificing in his backyard, I think. And he had been doing it for months but that he would he would wait until the spirit of, this is what he said, to so the spirit of Jesus Christ entered that animal and then he would sacrifice it. So he said that while he was at the Mount of Olives sacrificing on behalf of these individuals that he refused to, in his mind, offer the animal up to Hashem that he, and that he waited for the spirit to enter the animal. Then he sacrificed it unto Yahuwah. I don't know what that means prophetically, what implications that holds, but it's, it shook me. It shook me. It shook me. It shook me up, man. So yeah, uh, we're going to talk about this and much, much more tomorrow, 9am. Be prepared. If You got questions, write them down now and uh, bring them tomorrow to the table. That's all I can say, Dr. Pigeon.
0: Well, it's quite the subject. And I'll tell you, we're in incredible times right now. And this is one of the most incredible things that has happened since the crucifixion.
1: Mm. Yeah. And you know what? I think, too, just I know we got to go, but I think this is, I don't, you know, it's prepared, it's conditioning. It's conditioning the people, it's preparing their hearts to receive mm-hmm. offerings so that offerings become acceptable and the norm that the oblations. Are no longer offensive right because they say oh well nothing really happened oh well you know and so there's no there's no watchmen there's nobody watching on the wall if there are there's only a few praise you who are for leland and for you and for those who are you know myself watching out but who's really contesting these things who's standing up who is making uh, a shout you know who's shouting dr pigeon people are gonna say oh well yeah so once the sacrifice is. No, Yeah, let's go to lunch. Let's go to lunch. That's what they said, Dr. Pigeon. That's what Leland said. Leland said that they were like, let's go to lunch after it was over. Me, I was horrified. Well, Leland also has another video in which he has done some undercover work. Man, I was like, I want to go to Israel and be a spy. But he went uh, and he found, he happened to stumble upon this um, underground, and he took video um, capture. He captured it on his video camera. Dr. Pigeon, he found um, this uh, under underneath the Temple mount, mount somewhere. Oh, I can't remember exactly but where. He- temple mount, yeah,
0: it's the synagogue of the nascent Sanhedrin. Yeah,
1: the, and there, he said there's 70 seats. I mean, he's showing you with his camera there's 70 seats. And he's associating it with what the Temple Institute is doing. And it's ironic that they are already preparing. They are practicing. They are practicing. They, they have Levites in order that are already practicing. I saw another video in which these Levites were actually sacrificing according to biblical um pattern, and they were draining the blood on the, on the dirt, you know, and eating the animal and all these things. They're already preparing. This is not the first sacrifice. This is the first sacrifice at the Mount of Olives, but this is not the first one. But in this it. was
0: the cutting of a covenant in blood.
1: Yeah. on behalf of, yeah, you're right. So, but they are already cutting they're already they're already sacrificing animals over there. It's become a thing. If you just Google Israeli news, you'll see that it's already become a thing in Israel and it's eventually going it's going to be accepted as as it's going to become acceptable.
0: No, no, it won't. What, what's going to happen now is that we have seen the abomination of desolation in the holy place.
1: The Mount of Olives, you think that's the holy place?
0: it's Yerushalayim.
1: Oh, I see what you're saying. Oh my gosh, duh.
0: And when you're talking about Yerushalayim, I mean, this is where the Mount of Olives, look, there's an olive tree sitting there in the Mount of Olives that was there when Mashiach prayed at Gethsemane. It's mm-hmm. still there. And it's mm-hmm. not very far from that little spot where you sit up there in that circle and look over, look over Yerushalayim. It's very, very close.
1: Well, you know, Kathy, let's hang on for that question. Let's hang on for that question tomorrow. The
0: destruction tomorrow. of the third temple, the destruction of Herod's temple, not no. the first temple.
1: The okay.
0: destruction of the second temple.
1: Okay. So Kathy's saying, so after the destruction of the first temple, no more sin sacrifices?
0: No, no. After the destruction of the last temple. Technically, it was the third temple. It was
1: Herod's temple. Okay. So tomorrow... It's on 9 a.m dr pigeon thank you again for your presentation and for spending time with us we really appreciate you here uh you I'm got some blessed
0: by it, jessica i love everybody that's here and that joins us for these shows I'm so that everybody's here and i'm so thankful that people Continue to pray for me. I really appreciate it. I really And you do. know what's
1: awesome, Dr. Pigeon? We get lots of comments on the videos, and I get lots of emails, as I'm sure that you do. And I'll say that uh, the norm, the norm is 99% absolute amazing testimonies. I love reading the emails. I used to fret and think, oh my gosh, they're going to be horrible because I worked with other people and the, the comments were always ugly. Uh, and I was like, oh, I don't want that. I don't want to hear people. So I would turn the comments off, but no way, Dr. Pigeon, The comments and and the emails that come through, people are just appreciative and grateful, and their testimonies are phenomenal. I love reading them. I don't get to respond to all of them, but I love reading them. And if you look at all the comments, I get like maybe one or two, you know, you know, that don't, don't like, Yeah, and I just delete. I don't even read through, I just delete. As soon as I see one, name, I'm just delete, delete, delete. But it's very few, very, very few. One, maybe, not even a percent, not even a full 1%, but very small. So I thank you, and I'm sure that the public does as well for all that you put into um, you know, edifying the body and encouraging us to look into these things uh, and to look into them with with an intent heart. So thank you. Thank you very well, much.
0: We'd appreciate the support over at sephard.net You know, 3ER2 is now on the street.
1: What's and 3ER2? It,
0: 3ER2 is our latest edition of the sephard It includes the 70 verses of uh, in 4 Ezra. It includes the inset of all the prayers or all inseted, you can immediately find them. We have the citation for all the quotes out of the Old Testament indented in the New Testament. I'm telling you, I got my copy. Here, hold on just a second. 3ER2, three 3ER2, three yes it is. 3ER2. Mine is loaded up with tabs, but I mean, just to give you a quick example, Jessica.
1: Yes, sure please. It.
0: Okay, so one of the changes we made, if you look, you'll see, That we now, and we've taken down the all caps of Ruach, Yahuwah, Elohim, and Yahuwah, Mm -hmm. and we instead have put them in bold. So they Mm -hmm. stick out immediately. I like that. When you look in the New Testament, look at this. You'll see here in the New Testament. Do you see the indentation?
1: I do, I do, yeah, yeah.
0: That indentation is the direct quote from the Old Testament. (sighs) Very good. And we have it cited down here in footnotes as to what the quote is. We also have in the book of Enoch, we went into Enoch and we said, OK, look, Enoch is a difficult book because of the fact that we used both the Lawrence and the canib use the Lawrence and the canib and the Charles version. So we have footnoted everything in Enoch. That oh,
2: wow. Talks about,
0: let's see if I can show that. It talks yeah, about yeah. where it comes from and what it means and so forth. So Enoch is fully footnoted. And then, of course, the big deal, I talked Brad into this one. And what we wanted to do was we wanted to footnote all of the Hebraic passages in Revelation. So when you're in Revelation now, you can see every single verse is Love it. to its Old Testament root. In the book of Revelation. Hallelujah. So the prayers are in set. The, the paper is spectacular. We we David and I went and fought with the printer to get this particular paper, and we we really had to kind of brutalize the guys to get this paper, but we, we finally managed to get this paper. So the paper is beautiful, the thickness of the book is manageable now. Oh, goodness. And this is and this, by the way, contains uh, the quote concerning the Napalene in Genesis 6-4 and in Numbers uh, 15-33. It contains some of the the very critical changes that, that reflect the most recent discoveries we have in the Torah, as well as in the New Testament. So, I mean, this thing is really by far, I mean, when I got my copy, I just fell in love with it. It was just like, oh yeah, this is just, it's the best work we've ever done.
2: And oh
0: so man. If, if you don't have a sefer, <clears throat> now's the time to get one, and you're going to get a book that you're just going to love. Yeah. Now, this in mind too with the sefer. You know, in the back here, we have this section here that is like um, Mother's mat- Matrilineal History. Oh,
1: yeah.
0: Father's matrilineal, matrilineal History. We have family history. We have 10 pages of family history where you can put in your own genealogy these maps here this is this particular map here is the migration of the house of zarah okay and this shows where the migration pattern was and you can see now i i created these maps myself and we have a we have uh this map here look at this one this is a map on the exodus right this map is like no other map you will ever find because it shows if you look, it shows the crossing where Ron Wyatt found like all that. the chariots, and it shows the place of Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai in uh, you know in Saudi Arabia where it has just recently been discovered. And so this shows the true, this is the most accurate description of the exodus that's ever been put in a map ever.
1: Oh my gosh, that's so cool.
0: And so anyway, all of that stuff is in the at Sefer and 3ER2, and this is the one we're selling now. This is what's available at Sefer. So if you want to get the book, this is it. This is the one. It's a spectacularly well-published book. I love it anyway. Yay.
1: Okay, so here's the thing. If you already have a sufferer like I do, I would encourage you to donate that to someone who doesn't have the means to get one. You can donate your older one and perhaps bless yourself or, you know, indulge in a newer one. Um, I know I think that's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm, there there are people in my community who would really be blessed by my sufferer, the one I have. Um, listen, if you do consider getting something, uh, the newer one or updating or anything from Dr. Pigeon's um, uh, website, Please use the link in the description bar. That I placed a link there that um, gives uh, me a little kickback, and it helps me. I think it's you know, I mean, it helps me out, and I'm over here, you know, working hard too. But it helps, it helps, it helps you guys when you contribute to the body. And Doctor Pigeon has put so much work him and his and his group, his crew, <laughs> his crew. They have done so much. You have no idea the labor. And how intensive it is for them, not to mention the fact that Dr. Pigeon has a nine to five, plus he does ministries, plus he does blogs, plus he's you know constantly responding to the people. So purchasing some of the products that they're putting out that helps not only support what he's doing, but it also helps to support other ministries. Believe it or not, Dr. Pigeon gives these links to many different ministries and it helps it gives us something. it gives us something. So this is Dr. Pigeon's way of also helping the community. It doesn't all go to him. he actually gives back to us. and every month I I get a little something and it helps. it really does. So please consider that. use the link in the description bar. go to his website, check out the stuff that he has. support what we do. consider donating. It's a good place to donate not only to this ministry, but to the Sefer ministry. Like I said, he gives back to the community. So consider that. Consider that. All right, Dr. Pigeon, we are going to call it a night, my friend, because we've got to get up early. Amen, sister. Coffee and lemon bars. 9 a.m. <laughs>
0: okay. That's and we'll see you morning. then. So, and we will see everybody in the morning. I love you people very much. And I love you, uh, my king.
1: Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I receive it. Amen. Amen. All right. See you all tomorrow. Shalom. Shalom. Bye, Dr. Shalom.
2: Shalom.